Tom Sykes catches fire and Jonathan Ray smokes the field. Another week in the life of World Superbikes. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, welcome to episode 31 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101, looking back on a big weekend of superbikes both at home and abroad as the race for the British and World Superbike Championships continued last weekend. The race for the World Superbike Championship is almost run now after Tom Sykes' title hopes disappeared in a ball of flames, leaving Jonathan Ray clear to take, even by his standards, a supremely dominant double at Portimao uh, on the Algarve in Portugal. Um, we'll also look at all the other big stories from the weekend, including a history-making moment in World Supersport 300 uh, and a change of championship leader in World Supersport. We'll also look back on the first showdown round in British Superbikes as the title turned Leon Haslam's way at Alton Park, uh, including another moment where a star was born on board a Suzuki. We'll also look ahead to this weekend as MotoGP returns in Aragon and they have brought a doctor back with them. He may well need one of his own um, if the current news is anything to go by. Valentino Rossi is back at Aragon. Joining me this week once again for episode 31, it's Andre Harrison. Warm welcome, Dre. Hello, guys. Good to be back as always. And uh, yeah, well, apparently they're still putting out the flames on Tom Sykes number 66 just as we speak. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been that kind of weekend uh, for uh, Yorkshire's finest. Um, it's, to be fair, it's been um, a weekend of flames um, for Dre as well. Um, you'll notice he's not been on Motorsport 101 for the third week running. Um, that, that is no way in any relation to what happened to his, um, his hero in Singapore uh, last weekend. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. No idea at all. Um, but um, yeah, um, Max Verstappen is currently sleeping with a prancing horse's head um, somewhere at the moment. Um, but um, yeah, Dre, we're delighted to announce. Or I think I believe I'm right in saying this. I'm not jumping the gun, Dre. You will be back for episode 105. Uh, I think so. I have no schedule on <laughs> my current work job for next week. I was 99% sure because originally I was going to be working Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which meant, yeah, yeah, I've got Monday free, so this shouldn't be a problem. Now I've been told I'm working Monday all day and I might have the Tuesday off. I don't know yet. So I wish I could say I'm back next week, but I can't say that with confidence yet. Sorry. Hey, um, Dre, but... You call the shots on this one. Um <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. I'm really trying, guys. I promise. It's it's uh, it's uh, fortunately to, to put it shortly, my work cluster is a dumpster fire. Uh, as a result, um, I am bending over backwards, doing forty to fifty hour weeks, and as a result, it's kind of hard to, to guarantee when I'm free and when I'm not because everybody is stretched like like. It's like like Stretch Armstrong right now, for a lack of a better metaphor. Um, everybody's stretched. Everybody's doing extra hours. Everybody's stressed. <laughs> everybody wants to punch a wall right now on my current job. But it's one of those things where I'm trying really, really hard to be on there. So people that have asked, like, believe me when I tell you, I would love to be on the show. And I'm sure you'd love to hear my like profanity-laced rant about, about Ferrari shitting the bed in Singapore. But unfortunately, it's just been really difficult. So thanks for your patience. I do really appreciate it. Um, as soon as I know for sure, you guys on Twitter at Harrison101HD will be the first to know. So please, please, please bear with me on this one. And don't believe me when I say it's not through lack of trying. <laughs> um, but um, stand by for more on that. Hopefully you'll, you'll know a bit more by the time this goes out. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm already chasing my, my boss down with a horse's head in his bed, hmm. saying, 
the hell is my rotor for next week and why am I in two different shops again, um, <laughs> etc. That's the sort of shit I've got to deal with, basically. Yeah, it's a week in the life of Dre. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want to hear his voice, listen to this show. Um, where, uh, where Dre has been an ever present lately. Um, but yeah, places you can places you can find us. Um, you can find Dre in William Hill with a slightly ropey roof. But apart from that, you can find him on Twitter <laughs> at Harrison One Hundred One HD. Um, yep. I'm at Lewis Sutterby Twenty Three. Um, Bex, um, who um, will shortly be heading to Australia to uh, the, view the final round of the Speedway and to have a well-earned holiday. Um, she is at Beck underscore J93. Um, for all of those who've been wondering where she's been, she has been insanely busy with work, as Dre has been. Um, she's kind of facing the same problem Dre has been with Motorsport 101 this uh, this last few weeks, when just that she's just not having the time, unfortunately, to join us on yeah, this show. Um, but the next available opportunity to get her on this show, we promise we will. Um, to follow the podcast at Motorsport underscore 101, where you can find all the information about both of our shows. Uh, Facebook, we're at facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. The... Um, Episodes of Bike Live aren't the only places at the moment you can hear Dre's voice because you can also hear him on YouTube right now, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Plenty of content up on there um, over the past week. Uh, our website is motorsport101.net, and if you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both this show and to Motorsport 101, uh, episode 104 is live right now. Um, it's patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101. Last week's episode of the podcast, Motorsport 101. Um, look back on the Singapore Grand Prix. Um, not that all of us, um, particularly in this room, want to look back on it. Uh, and indeed, the final round of the IndyCar series at Sodoma as Joseph Newgarden took the title. Um, all of that, uh, including the big reveal of the winner of the Motorsport 101 Centennial Cup, all on this week's edition uh, of the Motorsport 101 podcast. Um, right then, let's uh, head to pot him out first of all and we're going to start this week's show in a place where we've never started it before we're going to start in world super sport 300 uh, the brand new class which debuted this year and uh this week more than any week this class has been in the news because of a moment of history dre at pot last weekend um it, it's been a long time coming um, but we do finally have the first ever female winner of a motorcycle road race in the world championship uh, and that moment of history belongs to Anna Carrasco. Indeed it does. Congratulations to Anna Carrasco. That is a, a, a ridiculously special moment um, in black racing history. The first woman to ever win a world championship race. Um, and she did it in some style as well of a beautifully timed move on the final straight at Portimao, just pulling out of the slipstream at the last possible moment to put a wheel over the line first. It was beautifully timed and yeah, a, a very, very special moment for those that, uh, you know, like again, we, 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 we've spoken like on Motorsport 101 about this on many occasions talking about, you know, women in motorsport and you know how it's, it's not a fair fight right now. And you know, it, it, it does have a participation problem on many, many different levels. So to see, <coughs> pardon me, to see Anna Carrasco win a race um, in this brand new class as well, which is essentially a Moto3 class um, for all intents and purposes, um, it, it's a very special moment. It's a landmark moment. And the fact that places like The Guardian and even The New York Times have featured this race um, in a lot of mainstream media has picked up on this. Mm. That's fantastic. And that's only a good thing for the series. And hopefully... It you know it, it might just inspire a few more young girls to give to give bike racing a chance and to give and I think again I've always said it, I think the biggest problem with mo- with women in motorsport is that 
a lot of them just don't take part on a basic level and it's, it's not even a matter of getting to the top it's a matter of just people not taking part so if if this inspires a handful of, of of young of young girls to get in there and give it a go then mission accomplished for sure because this was this was a this was a marquee moment and i and let's hope that we don't forget it anytime soon yeah yeah that's the i mean yeah you're right there in that they they the, the girls of the future who want to ride a motorcycle rather than do any kind of other um, job in the world. I mean, they they almost they need a hero, don't they? They need a hero or a heroine in this case to look for look up to. Um, and to her credit, Anna Carrasco has, to a large part, been flying the flag in the last four or five years, really, for for women in motorcycle racing. She has been the premier woman in in motorcycle sport. Um, given that her, along with Maria Herrera, have been uh, competing in the world championship, and you know, we mustn't forget that Anna Carrasco has top ten results to her name in Moto Three um, over the years. The um, the race, which many of us remember for the races, Maverick Vinales won his Moto Three title. Anna Carrasco finished eighth in that race, um, beating some very very um, esteemed competition in that race. You know, the three on the podium in that race that Carrasco finished eighth in are all in Moto GP right now. Um, and uh, and one of them is currently uh, fighting for the world championship in it. Um, so she has raced against that level of competition and held her own against them in the past. Um, and, along with, and along with Herrera, she's been she's having to try and carry that flag for women in motorcycle racing. And yeah, that was the other thing that struck me, as you mentioned, the the fact that this really did um, make mainstream news. I mean, I noticed on the Sunday. I mean, usually I find it very easy to avoid the results of uh, of a World Supersport 300 race, but the BBC Sport website. Had had a link to this article. Had a link to this race result. This this meant so much. This was this is a result that just transcended motorcycle sport. This was this was a huge moment just for women's sport. Period. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, mainstream media jumped all over this one. And yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right for 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 women in sport in general. Um, this is huge. Um, this is absolutely huge. And again, like bike racing, like there's not much more in terms of masculinity than bike racing we talked about this a couple of months back with josh brooks mm. uh, and alicia spagaro had their war of words over the bravery of riding on a super wet circuit that may or may not have been really friggin' dangerous um and again josh brooks tweeted address and is that what you want young girls to be being inspired by uh, trying to get into bike racing when you will be labeled as your gender as basically being a bit of a chicken and that's the sort of thing that the sport doesn't need right now this is what it needs and that and that's to get behind on this and and yeah I, you're absolutely right i think i'm glad that mainstream media did jump on this and i'm glad that you know it's getting the attention it deserves because yeah this is a marquee moment and you know let's like, let's celebrate that as opposed to you know, looking for reasons to nitpick how the, how the sport is right now. Let's, let's, let's get behind it. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah, and she's still only 20 years old, is Anna Carrasco. She's been around for a number of years now, as I mentioned. She's been in the Moto3 class for a number of years, but she's still only 20 years of age. Um, so still a lot of years left in her career for her to keep improving and perhaps going to make more history uh, in her career just yet. She kind of fell off the Moto World Championship radar a couple of years ago and raced last year in the CEV Moto2 class. Um, before returning to World Championship competition with the Supersport 300 class in the World Superbike paddock uh, this year, um, and a tremendous job for her. And it was a race that she she really earned, as, as Dre mentioned. It was it was a very tactically um, fought out race in that um, it was always, always going to be a case in such one of those pack races we see many of them in Moto3, where it's a case of who's going to lead over the line on the final lap rather than uh, anything else. It's just positioning your bike in the right way to get onto that final straight on the last mm -hmm. lap, which Carrasco did so well, getting into that 
um, home straight in second place and then just out dragging um, the Spaniard Mark Garcia, um, championship leader, heading into that race and beating him to the line um, to win his, her first uh, world championship race. And she spoke afterwards saying that I think it will mean a change of mentality and people will now believe that a woman can be fighting for a world championship. This is good for me and for the future. It was a perfect day for Kawasaki. As she mentioned, Kawasaki won in all classes, as you will hear as we go through this show. They were dominant as a manufacturer um, throughout last weekend. And yeah, a, a groundbreaking moment for women's motorcycle sport. And I noticed as um, the race finished, um, Eurosport worked quickly on the ball and were able to uh, grab Jenny Timmouth, um, a stalwart of BSB for the last few years. Um, and she was absolutely beaming. Um, and she was grinning from ear to ear. You could see just on her face how significant a moment this was um, mm-hmm. for women's sport. And um, I think we we're all delighted to see Carrasco um, not just take that win, but to have won it in such a manner, to have earned it the way she did. It was fantastic. And it's worth pointing out, isn't it, Dre, that this could have easily happened earlier in the year because she was right in the mix for that victory in that madcap race we saw at Astonale this season before the chaos late in the race really delayed her, which she could have won there too. Absolutely. She was right in the mix on that one too. So this is not... this. I wouldn't even consider this a fluke result. She's been up in... She's been in the upper classes of that Super Sport 300 class pretty much all season long. And she has been competitive pretty much all season long. I mean, again, there's a case you can make that many people that have taken part in those classes have not been and have maybe been given a level of... Of, of a leash, so to speak, for lack of a better term. She's the, up to the seventh top. in the championship. Yeah, like she's competitive. She's in that mix uh, of, of the top guys in the class and since since the class came about at the start of this year. She's been right in there. So, this again, this is not a coincidence. She has been up there, she's been competitive, and she has completely earned this win. Mm. <laughs> yeah, two ways as well. Two different sort of good news stories come out of this um, in terms of getting the public talking. Um, obviously, the boost this gives women's sport is huge um but also Drake, as far as this news class is concerned um greg haynes was quick to mention this and i think he's absolutely right that um as, as just equally as the world was talking about anna carrasco this weekend the world was talking about world super sport 300 um which, which can be no bad thing as this class is still in its very uh, embryonic phase it's still in its first year um and we haven't really talked about this class at length since that crazy race at assen which is still up there in one of my favorite races of the year to watch um and i guess portimaudre was another um, example of the fact that if you put these bikes on the right circuit they can entertain as well as any class in the world Absolutely. Um, like We did have concerns about this series when, since its inception, and the biggest concern we had was the sheer lack of speed would look really, really bad at certain venues. And yeah, there's a good reason why they're not racing at Qatar the season finale, um, which kind of says it all. But you put them on the right circuit, one where the, the, the flaws of these bikes are not exposed, and you get very, very captivating racing. Very similar to a Moto3 race, you'll have a big leading group, it have plenty of opportunities to pass, um, and you know the, the power bikes of the are... slipstream was incredible. Yeah, God, gosh, yeah, like it was, it was worth a good three or four miles an hour, and it was a huge difference on those bikes, and that's what made it interesting. Like no leading, no leading guy could break free from the pack, and it would always come down to the final corner, which is what happened in Portimao. So, yeah, this series in a vacuum in the right environment does do very well for itself. Yeah, it does, and um, yeah, a brilliant race that we saw. It was. It was interesting in that it looked immediately as if it was going to be uh, Carrasco up against the two Hal Courier bikes of Borja Sanchez and Mark Garcia, who went in as the World Championship leader um, by virtue of the fact that World Super 
Sport 300 has had an interesting few weeks with riders getting disqualified from races. Um, Alfonso Coppola was disqualified from the win at Donington. Uh, Mika Perez was disqualified from a podium um, at the Lausitz Ring last time out, which um, left Garcia as championship leader um, and has closed the field right up. But Garcia um, had done a great job because I think he started that final lap in around third or fourth and just sighed his way through on that final lap. It's a very daring overtake, so I'm including a bit of a dive bomb on Carrasco. It has to be said, three or four corners out. Um, but Carrasco was able to position herself in the right position going on to that final straight, just to out-drag Garcia to the line. And um, as I mentioned, the power of the slipstream was evident in that Garcia was not only out-dragged to the line by Carrasco, but also by his main championship rival, uh, Alfonso Coppola. Uh, who beat him into second place. Coppola took second with Garcia in third, which means there is just a point separating the two of them at the head of the World Championship now with just two races to go in this class um, in Superspot 300. At the moment, it is led um, by Coppola um, by one point from Garcia. That changed at the weekend with Coppola taking that second place. Um, and... Still four riders to link attention with Scott Drew, the early championship leader who won the first two races um, of this season. Um, the opening race at Assen and indeed, uh, sorry, Aragon, followed by the next race uh, at Assen. Um, that saw Drew take an early lead in the World Championship. He's since sort of plateaued, really. I think he only finished down in seventh at the weekend um, in the Aragon race. Uh, but he is still in contention just about um, behind um, his... Um, two Spanish rivals, and then another Spaniard in fourth, in Mika Perez, who, as I mentioned, was disqualified from the podium um, at the Lions' Ring two weeks ago. Um, he is on a Honda, and that's another great thing about this class so far, in that three different makes of manufacturer are competing at the front for this World Championship. Coppola is on a Yamaha, um, Perez is on a Honda, and then the uh, two, uh, we have the Kawasaki of Daru in there as well, um, along with Garcia, who is also on a Kawasaki. As it stands then, with two races to go, Coppola leads on 102, with Garcia in second on 101, uh, Garcia being on brand, if nothing else. Uh, Scott Drew in third on 84. That's 18 off the lead. And Mika Perez is 19 off the lead in fourth position. Mathematically, there are still eight riders, including Carrasco, who are mathematically in championship contention, um, but with two races to go. He's likely to be between the top four um, to win the championship. The result, though, from last weekend, which we'll run you through now, um, from the... Um, uh, Portimao round of the World Supersport 300 class. Carrasco, the winner, um, her first victory in the class. Um, ahead of Coppola in second place, Martin Garcia, the championship leader heading into the race, finishes third, but obviously loses that championship leader's result. Danny Valle in fourth, who was playing rear gunner uh, for his teammate for most of the race. Didn't work in the end, he finished fourth. Perez in fifth, with Sanchez on the third of the Halcuria bikes in sixth. Scott Daru, the early championship leader, down to seventh, uh, with Faco in eighth, Shotman, the South African, ninth, and Paolo Gracia in tenth position. On to the Supersport 600s now. Um, and we'll come on to Superbike in a moment. Um, the uh, long-running story, Dre, of this season was uh, Luca Mahias' uh, desperate attempts to cling on to his championship lead that he built up early on um, from the relentless Keenan Safoglu. And we did ask going into the weekend if Mahias' grip on that championship lead was finally going to be released. And it finally was. It was. Keenan beats him over the line. I'm by half a bike length on that one. Lucas, for the first time, the difference really was on this one was that it seemed that, again, I said for the first time that Lucas was really able to give Keenan a big fight for a race win. Sadly, that doesn't count in terms of points scored. Um, and yeah, Keenan still did just enough to take the win over Lucas Mahias on that one. But Mahias might take a little bit of solace in saying he was able to run him close. Um, unfortunately, close isn't quite good enough, and it's it's Keenan's beaten Lucas again here. And 
Lucas is running out of rounds to reestablish his foothold on the championship because he's only got four rounds to go now, or three rounds to go now, I should say. Mm. And it's it's not looking good. <laughs> no, it's not. Of course, Super Sport only race once per weekend as opposed to Super Bikes who, who run twice. And um, the fact remains that when both are finished this year, Mahias has still not beaten Sofoglu um, in a race, which um, is... A shame, even if Mahias wins this championship. And you know, who's to say that Sofoglu's not going to have another problem somewhere, which hands Mahias another 25 points, and, and that might be all it takes. And we, we, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, in that I almost I really want Mahias, if he's going to win this championship, I really want him to win it by beating Sofoglu on track just to validate it. And, he, right. and he's still not doing it, unfortunately. Since Sofoglu has returned to Super Sport uh, at Aragon, he had the DNF there, and in the six races that have followed, he has had five wins and one second place. Um, and that second place was a red flagged race where he had just taken the lead prior to the stoppage uh, and was yeah. given second place, um, which just goes to show, I suppose, Dre, whether he wins this championship or not, Sofoglu has kind of made his point this year, hasn't he? I mean, he doesn't have anything else left to win because he's already won this championship several times. Um, but whether he wins this series or not, Sofoglu has just proven to the world that no one does what he does on a Supersport bike, can he? No. Um, he, he's still the king. And the fact he's... He basically had no points through the first three rounds of the season, and then he's back in the championship lead with three rounds to spare. Um, yeah, Keenan's the king here, folks. They're like, oh, hell, the king, because nobody else is in the same ballpark as him right now in terms of, like, like this season would probably already be over if Keenan was able to run from the start. And, you know, Lucas is, bless him, he's doing his very best to keep to keep his slim chances alive, but right now it's just not happening for him. I mean, he's he's kind of taken the Thomas Lutey approach to, to winning a world championship this year as, as Mahias because he's, in the nine races we've had, he's in every race he's finished, Mahias, he's been on the rostrum. Um, the only two he hasn't finished were Buriram in Thailand, which was not his fault, his bike failed on him, um, and Mizano, which was his fault, where he fell off. Um, he's had a win, he's had five second places and a third. Um, from the races he's finished Mahias so he's he's had a great season um, but unfortunately um, it's Keenan's world I think World Super Sport and then Mahias just appears to be living in it um, at the moment what does appear clear though Dre from last weekend whoever wins the championship it's likely to be between the two names we've mentioned because Sheridan Marias, who catapulted himself into contention with that win at the Lausitz ring a few weeks ago um, only fourth at Portimao and given that he had a lot of points to make up fourth just wasn't enough was it? No, just it was just it was. I think it was a little bit too much of an ask, unfortunately. Um, great effort, really, but just not quite enough, at least in my opinion, anyway. Luzel beating him on the final lap in the end uh, of that one. So Foglu, the winner uh, in World Two Sport Six Hundred, as I mentioned, that is his fifth win of the year, uh, and he's only started seven races, um, which just shows you how amazing he has been in that class. And Mahias finishing in second, just six hundredths behind. Cluzel beat Marias to third. PJ Jacobson on the MV Augusta finishing in fifth. Ahead of Christian Jamarino, sixth. Federico Caracasulo, Mahias' teammate, back from injury and finished seventh. Ahead of Lorenzo Zanetti, who is now on Robbie Rolfo's old bike. Um, Christoph Bergman, ninth. And Rob Hartog, the Dutchman, was the leading ESS runner. That is the European um, class. They're basically the class that only runs in European rounds. Hartog won that by finishing tenth, just ahead of the triumph of Luke Stapleford, uh, who took 11th place. Other Brits uh, of note, Gino Ria, who finished in 14th position. Championship standings then with three to go. Uh, Keenan Safoglu leads Mahias by four. 
Uh, Marias is now 31 points back in third. He needs snookers, really, to win the championship. Jules Clouzel is 10 points further back in fourth. Jacobson is a pretty lonely fifth now on 79 points, 66 off the lead, ahead of Caracasulo in sixth. Ant West, who has moved on to bigger and better things, as you'll hear shortly, uh, is seventh. Kyle Smith, eighth. Robbie Rolfo is still ninth in the championship, even though we haven't seen him since Yay. the summer. And Kyle Ride, who's plateaued a bit since that very, very strong start to the year, um, where he was fourth and fifth in the first two races. He hasn't been in the top seven since then um, and hasn't scored in the last two races. He's down to 10th now on 43 points. Next round, um, which is key for World Super Sport, is on Mahias's home territory at Magnicor. What a key round that will be in the World Super Sport Championship. Um, it will be a defining weekend and a deciding weekend in all probability in the World Superbike class. We now know that because of what happened at Portimao last weekend. Jonathan Ray is now likely to clinch the championship in race one. He is pretty much guaranteed to clinch it in either race at Magni Corps uh, in two weeks' time. Um, and Drake, the moment that probably, well, that definitely rubber stamped it, unfortunately, um, was the moment we saw Tom Sykes in a fireball tumbling down the hill towards turn five at Portimao last Saturday. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, uh-oh, that looked bad. Um, yeah, of all times for a Kawasaki to catch fire and throw Tom Sykes off a bike, this was probably the worst time possible. Um, yeah, it was an awful accident. Sykes got the worst of it and it turns out he pretty much cracked his thumb in two, poor guy. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah that's makes pretty yeah. grim viewing. Oh, it's it's not pretty. It's like that time Jeremy Clarkson drove a car into a wall at 40 miles an hour, and you could see the chip of the thumb there. Like, oh no, that that's it looks worse on like um, you know. Oh dear, it's it's it wasn't pretty to say the least. Um, I mean, in, in fairness, I mean, look, even the most argument of Tom Sykes fans. Why are you all looking yeah. at me when I say that? Um, <laughs> would have pretty much conceded that this championship was only going one way. Um, whatever happened right. to Tom Sykes. But, uh, however, I mean, you, you, I mean Tom, Jonathan Ray was brilliant, as we're going to come on to in a second. But it's still a pretty sad way, isn't it, for a championship to ultimately be decided. Oh, yeah. Oh well, I mean, I think I think we jumped that shark some time ago uh, regarding Sykes and the, and the differences between him and Ray in terms of the championship fight. Yeah, I mean, it is. Oh, I don't want to call it an anti-climax because I don't think there really was a climax here at any point, fortunately. Um, but you want to see it settled hard. on the track, don't you? You don't want to see it yeah. settle because one of them's in hospital, um, which yeah. which was a bit of a shame. And uh, and Johnny Ray said himself on the Sunday he he, he wished John, Tom Sykes all the best and hope that he'd get back out there soon. Sykes, by the time Ray was taking his second win of the weekend, was already back in Barcelona, um, having had surgery um, on his hand. A spectacular crash, which... Um, left him with um, a number of injuries. Obviously, the burns, um, first of all, from the, um, the flames engulfing him as he slid oh. down the hill, um, which weren't pleasant. Um, but his, his left little finger needed plating. Um, uh, as Dre mentioned, it was pretty much snapped in half, um, the bone, oh. given um, the, the pain, because obviously the bike collected him as he was falling down the hill. Um, it wasn't really your kind of standard crash, was it? It wasn't kind of the crash where you sort of just lose the front and slide off or high side off. He kind of... The bike got unsettled as he came over that crest and he was sort of he was almost broncoing it, wasn't he, down the hill um, as he yeah, was trying to stay on board the bike. So it wasn't like he could anyway kind of brace himself and get himself in any kind of position to cushion the landing. He was just basically ragdolled off the bike and um, as a result, the injuries um, weren't pleasant. He also suffered a fracture to his ring finger and cracked the end of his radius. Um, so, um, oh. yeah, a pretty uh, painful weekend, all told. So it's still not 100% certain yet. 
um, if Tom Sykes will be back next weekend uh, at Magni Corps. Uh, but we wish him all the best as he looks to recover from that injury. Once Tom Sykes was out of play, um, the pretty much near certainty became an absolute certainty. Because we spoke last week, didn't we, Dre, about how Jonathan Ray on Friday was looking in a class of his own already. And that was with Tom Sykes uh, on the racetrack with him at Portimao. Take Sykes out of the equation. The only guy on a bike comparable to Jonathan Ray. Um, and Johnny Ray was untouchable, wasn't he? Pole position by over seven tenths. And they didn't see which way he went in race one. No, it was, um, I mean, I know Portimao's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but if you look over the mountains and you could see into the sky, you could almost hear the the, the, the quiet, dulcet tones of beat him down, yes. ringing, <laughs> ringing down over well, Portimao. I think you called it a super beat him down, didn't you? Yeah, that was that was that was destruction. That was that was destruction on every level. That was yeah. That, Jonathan Ray was 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 absolutely untouchable all weekend long. I mean, Sykes would you know might have probably put him on pole, put us off on pole if, if he was out there. But that was that was a dead horse after he was gone, and no one was no one was in the same postcode outside of Tom Sykes. And yeah, Jonathan Ray. I mean, he, he went full Sebastian Vettel on the opening lap of race one. You know, was was two point two seconds clear after one racing lap. Yeah, like there's there's no beating that. <laughs> it isn't. Like the race was over by the end of the first lap. I changed the channel. I was like, yeah, I know. Look, I know this is done. Like, like let me let me just get rid of this right here. It was over uh, halfway around the first lap. I mean, the 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 TV director was already focusing on the battle for second, and I'm watching, thinking, where's Johnny gone? Yeah, he's, he's he wasn't in the same shot. No. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. it. It was, it was, for lack of a better term, ridiculous. Um, yeah, just absolutely no answer for him whatsoever. And yeah, that race was done by the end of the opening lap, which again just kind of says it all about Jonathan Race brilliance, really. Yeah, it is. Um, and, and we have to. I mean, it, it's very easy, as as many onlookers have proven um, recently. And someone actually proved it on Saturday. I'll find the tweet. Um, this person's probably not listening so he won't mind me saying it um, yeah. but um, I tweeted this straight away Ray 2.2 seconds clear after lap 1 Christ almighty um, was the tweet yeah. someone immediately replied to me saying good for Ray but so boring to watch um, which, which, <laughs> pissed, which pissed me off uh, no yeah. end um, and as always there are two ways of looking at it that is one way of saying well yeah this is really not really making for a great spectacle but you cannot ignore the the fact that we're watching absolute brilliance here, and we, we shouldn't forget this, should we? While, of course, we'd all like a closer championship and a closer battle at the front, but you have to appreciate on certain occasions that this guy's just way too good, and we're watching right. a rider who may well, by the time he's all said and done, go down as the greatest world superbike rider of all time. He is hot on the heels of Fogarty's records, isn't he? Yeah, the guy the guy's ridiculous. Um, by By any measure, he is one of World Superbike's greatest, and he will probably end up as one of the greatest ever. Imagine if he found a decade on, on a Honda. Yeah this, yeah, this is a guy that was almost too loyal to the Honda brand. We saw glimpses of what he could do when he when he covered for Casey Stoner in MotoGP, but I don't think anybody could have ever thought he'd be this good on a Kawasaki, where the, the guy pretty much owns this series. He's he's a magnificent bike rider, and it's 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 a shame we, we we've never seen him full time MotoGP. But let's not let's not let that be the be all and end all of, of his career because he is a magnificent talent, and like it, it is fun seeing him do things on a bike that nobody else can do. 
And, you know, and again, the guys that are saying this is boring are probably the same guys that have already gotten bored of Mar- Marquez, which I don't even know is possible, quite frankly. Because he's so entertaining. But, yeah, I, 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 can, I completely agree that, you know, there is, I mean, there is a level of, you know, sadness that comes with a, pre- a predictable championship. But it's predictable because that man is that good. And you have to tip your hat to someone who's that good because, you can't write things like that. He, he's an unbelievable talent, and he deserves to be treated to be treated as such. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the there is the the talk that remains of Jonathan Ray perhaps going to ride a Suzuki in MotoGP next year. He has pretty much poured cold water on that um, in recent weeks, saying that he will go to MotoGP when Kawasaki goes to MotoGP. And before you get all excited, he also goes on to say there are no plans for them to do that in the near future, um, no. which is which is a shame. I, I would love to see, particularly with the rumours of MotoGP going to Donington next year, I'd love to see a Kawasaki team of Ray and Sykes move across um, right. to MotoGP. It would be fantastic. Um, but they have their own world at the moment in, in World Superbikes and are dominating. So you cannot blame them for a second for wanting to stick where they are um, given that they're in the business of selling production-based motorcycles, aren't they? And there's no better way of doing that, Dre, than winning every race in every class last weekend. Exactly. What 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 wins on Sunday sells on Mondays. The phrase famously goes, and Kawasaki are completely dominating the world of, of production-based motorcycle racing. They're, they are the undisputed kings right now. And, uh, you know, again, Jonathan Ray has dominated the World Series, and Kawasaki as a series has dominated the world Superbike Championship, they've dominated the World Super Sport Championship with Keenan Safogalu. You know, right now in BSB, we've got their championship leader right now is Leon Haslam and another Kawasaki. So they, they are they are taking over the world right now of, of Superbike Racing. And, you know, the, the, they are, they made a decision in 2011 that, you know, the, the MotoGP was not worth it financially. They decided to make production-based Superbikes and, they, and it's proven to be a fruitful decision because they are dominant right now and nobody can stop them. Yeah, they're <laughs> absolutely dominant. And the quirk of the regulations, of course, that have been brought in this year with the semi-reverse grid of World Superbikes gave us another opportunity to see Ray's brilliance among traffic. I mean, to be fair, I tweeted this on Sunday morning, Dre. I'm pretty sure they could have reversed the entire grid and Jonathan Ray would have still won race two, um, yeah. even if you put him right at the back. Um, but once again... He needed a lap and a half to get from ninth to first. Like, come on, man! This is this just this, 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 this isn't fair. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, give the other guys a chance. No, the man is ruthless, um, and rightly so. He's just that good. There's there's no other way of describing it. The guys cheat code and you know starting from ninth there's not been a problem for jonathan ray all year long and this was never going to be a problem no. he won that race at a, a cakewalk and didn't look back uh, if, it, if he was in the lead by what lap three i want to say yeah halfway around lap two he'd uh, overtaken leon coming by the end of lap one he was already up to second um from, from, oh, from ninth on the grid um with some more and it's amazing how he does this in that he still is prepared and in many ways, it is a similarity to Mar- Marquez. Um, you mentioned earlier on, who, he, he's still prepared, even when he's in such a comfortable championship position, to throw caution to the wind where necessary. Um, and he, you see him do that so often on these opening laps of race two. Um, he's prepared to take those risks to get through the field um, with some daring overtakes. And um, it's it's the sign of a champion. We, we mentioned this earlier in the year. I think we mentioned it around Donington time, where, of course, the ability to get through the traffic won him race two over Sykes. And it's like, this is what the great riders do. When you throw a regulation change at them that is supposed to disadvantage them, the best riders are the ones that find their way around these changes first. Um, and, yeah. and Jonathan Ray is the one that's done that. He was the one we recognised before anyone else. You've got to get through these eight riders that are ahead of you on race two. 
on the grid as early as possible. You cannot leave it three, four laps. You've got to do it in two um, and get to the front immediately. And, and Ray's done that time after time this year. As I say, in Portimao, it probably wouldn't have mattered anyway how long he'd taken. He'd probably still won. Um, but he sliced his way through on the first lap. And Leon Camier put up a bit of a fight on race on lap two, but not much of a fight. By the end of the lap, he was behind the Kawasaki and no one saw him again. And as a result now, Dre, whatever Tom Sykes does, we're likely to see the crowning of the first ever three times consecutively world champion in World Superbikes. Carl Fogarty has won three championships. In fact, he won more than three, but he did win three championships, but never in a row. Um, Jonathan Ray will be the first rider in the history of this World Superbike Championship to do it. And a win in race one at Magni Corps will do the trick. And even if Tom Sykes wins both races at Magni Corps, which is far from certain, Jonathan Ray would only need 30 points from Magni Corps to wrap up the championship. It's all over, Dre, bar the shouting. It is. It, it's pretty much done. The fat lady is warming up the vocal cords as we speak. Um, she's setting up for it. I mean, again, as I said, Jonathan Ray just needs 31 points to guarantee the championship. So basically two third places would be enough. Um, yeah, so we're pretty much done here. Um, I guess more, like, more pertinent for us, because we mentioned this off air before we started. Um, mm. Jonathan Ray has history in mind. And I'm sure he does pay attention to these kind of things because I don't know he does like the numbers. He, he came agonizingly close to breaking this record a couple of years ago uh, when his Kawasaki famously broke down in the final race of the year. Jonathan Ray is chasing the all-time record for a points total for a season. The record held by Colin Edwards in what many perceive to be one of the greatest World Superbike seasons of all time um, when he and uh, Troy Bayliss went to war for 26 races. Um, it's interesting, that was a season where, save for a Makoto Tamada wildcard appearance, only two riders won all year. Uh, those two <laughs> riders being Bayliss uh, and Colin Edwards. But I don't remember many people saying how that season was boring. Um, but anyway, Colin Edwards that season finished the championship campaign uh, with a record of 542 points, which means that Jonathan Ray needs 121 uh, to equal it, 122 to better it. Um, and given that there are six races to go and Jonathan Ray hasn't been outside the top two all year when he stayed on the bike, that po- that record is well within his reach. Absolutely, it is. And I wouldn't put it past him to do it. I mean, there's 150 points available. He needs 122 to beat it. Six second places. You can do the basic math. Works out at 120. And I, I, I think it's safe to say Jonathan will win at least once between now and the end of the year. Um, so the way it's going right now, he's, he's, he's pretty much odds on to break that record. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out in the end. But you know, I'm I'm the kind. Of, I might put that through as a request a bit on Sky and see if they actually give me odds on that. That's actually kind of interesting. Yeah, it is uh, interesting. I mean, what the only thing that might stop him, I suppose, from breaking that record this year, other than um, more bad luck, and he has had a bit of it this year. Uh, otherwise, he might have that record already. Uh, Jonathan Ray is the fact that the last three rounds on the calendar in recent years, in particular last year, were Chaz Davies rounds. Um, he always see, ends the season so strong. He always goes very well at Jerez and indeed in Qatar, um, where he doubled last year. Um, yeah. But it's fair to say, Dre, that Chaz Davies isn't necessarily in the best of form right about now because this was another weekend. And I hate to say this because Chaz Davies is a quality rider. Um, but it was another weekend which, to me, illustrated the difference between Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davies. It did. I mean, Chaz Davies' race to crash was just a very, very silly mistake. He admitted it himself. He was cruising, and he admitted openly he was probably cruising too much, and that's when he lost the front end with two laps to go in race two. 
gave up a very easy second place and basically handed Jonathan Ray the title on a platter. Um, and obviously giving Vandermark a little extra place on the electric step on the podium for his trouble. Mm. Um, so yeah, unfortunate to hear that um, you know Chaz Davis has made an, another you know silly mistake. Unfortunately, for lack of a better term, here it's just you know he's but Chaz is better than what than what we got at Portimao this weekend, and that what he did there was just was was a was a rookie mistake. Yeah, it was. I mean, we saw on on the on the world feed as um, Chaz Davies sat in his garage, and the the world feed cut to him um, at the end of race two, and he just did that immediately did that gesture where he sort of slapped himself on the forehead to say what an idiot I've just been um, in, yeah. in race two. He could not believe it, and I mean, Greg Haynes' commentary was pretty much saying what we were all thinking, like. Like, how has he just done this? He's on his own in second place with three laps to go. How has he crashed out? Like, unforgivable. It's just unforgivable. And as I say, it was a it was a weekend where we again saw the two sides of Chas Davies, the two sides which mean that he probably won't ever quite match up to what Jonathan Ray has done in World Superbikes. Of course, let's not forget in Super Pole, um, he was on target to. I mean, he, he would probably qualified second on the grid. Um, and then goes down in Super Bowl and has to start ninth on the grid. And as a result, by the time he got through the, the traffic, which he normally only has to face in race two, he had to face it in race one this time. Um, yeah. Johnny Ray was out of sight. He was five seconds up the road by the time Chaz Davies made it into second place. And it was all too late by then. Um, and Chaz had to make do um, with a second place from the weekend. As Dre mentioned, his crash in race two promoted to second place, Michael van der Mark. Um, and it's easy to forget that Michael van der Mark is still chasing his first win in World Superbike, so this equals his career best in the championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's nice for van der Mark, I think, this trade, because Yamaha, have, it's yet more validation for Yamaha for what a good job they're doing this season and the improvements they're making. Um, but for the large part, it's been Alex Lowe's that's taking the benefit and taking the glory from it. Van der Mark, of course, had that crash when leading at Misano. And it's nice to see that van der Mark now has a bit of champagne and silverware to show for his season. Absolutely, he's been very, very good. Just like again, like with Lowe's having the north, the awful high side in race two, they're pretty much dead level in the championship now. And like that, Lowe's is I think taking a lot of the credit for for Yamaha's gains this season because he has been the slightly more consistent rider of the two. But I mean, Vandermark had a had a good chance of a win at Masano, so it's no coincidence. He's he's been in the conversation um, pretty much all season long. It's just not that Yamaha's not been able to put it quite altogether um over the course of this season but yeah you're absolutely right i mean vandermark has been very very good he was excellent in race two had great pace was able to hold off marco melandri at the end of the grand prix and yeah a very hard a hard earned and well-earned second place and a good reward for vandermark solid season yeah i had to double check this i had to look at the points for the season it is his first podium of the year uh, michael vandermark I, 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 I had to double check that he's and as a result his first podium on a Yamaha, um, so That's congratulations to, to Michael Vandermark for that, um, because he's yeah best finished so far to this date of fourth, which he'd had on three occasions: um, race two at Assen, race two at Donington, and race two at Misano. Um, of course, race one at Misano, as Dre mentioned, he could quite easily have won that race there um, had his tyre not fallen off the rim. Um, and a good weekend for Vandermark. He's um, had a bit of bad news since then, as we'll tell you a bit later on, um, Michael Vandermark, but we'll come to that um, a little bit later. Um, following him home in race two was Marco Melandri. Um, Melandri, a brace of third places for him. He was a very uh, lonely third in race two. Um, he held off the on cameo to take third in race one. And... Um, <laughs> Probably one of the more unconvincing and uneventful 
um, podiums that Markham Landry's taken in his career, but they all count, right? They all count. You can only beat them they put in front of you. But man, Marco was 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 nowhere near the win, and he, he was just kind of in the middle of nowhere. Mm. He basically feasted on the week this weekend with Chaz Davis making mistakes, and he, um, you know Eugene Laverty being on a bike that is still fundamentally flawed. Um, Sykes it's, not being there, of course, as well. Sykes not being there as well. It, it bumped Marco up probably a bit more than he deserved. But again, you can only beat what they put in front of you. But a largely unimpressive podium. Uh, podium pair for Marco Melandri on this occasion. Yeah, I'm slightly um, underwhelmed by it for for another another reason because in race one the Melandri podium I was hoping would gonna, was going to go to another rider who was chasing him down at the end of race one. It's one of those where, as I mentioned, World Superbikes um, has come under fire lately for being um, boring in the eyes of some. I think sometimes you need to find your own fun in, in races like this where someone's dominating yeah. over the front. Um, and I managed to find my, find mine by cheering on Leon Camier. Um, who had to come from the fourth row of the grid because his bike wouldn't run in Super Pole, um, which otherwise he would have started much further towards the front. Um, he had to come from the fourth row of the grid, and with another lap on the end of that race in race one, Dre, I think we would have had the first ever MV Rostrum. I think we would have done. Uh, like Camille's pace at the end of race one was fantastic. He was right in the he was right in the mix. He was so close to MV's first podium back in World Superbikes and. You know, Camille worked so hard on that thing to get any sort of performance out of it. Just a real shame that he, he doesn't get the ultimate prize really for MV Augusta on this one to, to, to even get a bike in, in that that close. Um, but yeah, another fantastic performance from Camille. And again, you, you just wish he had a little bit more to really get in there and challenge challenge the super big hitters because he's a great rider, but he's just obviously limited in a, a bike that just isn't quite there competitively. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm convinced last weekend at Portimao, the only two riders that were quicker than Leon Camier were Jonathan Ray and Chaz Davis. I I, 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 don't, yeah. I don't I think Camier was he was quicker than Melandri and was simply disadvantaged by the fact that he had to start so far behind um, in race one because his bike wouldn't work. Um, fast forward to race two, where Camier did get the consolation prize of pole position. Um, for that race, with Ray Davies and Melandry on back in row three. Um, I, like many others, were thinking, hey, great, well, we'll get the podium in race two then. That was right until smoke started to pour from the back of the MV in race two. God um, damn it. <laughs> which which left Camia ending up having to pull off the racetrack um, halfway through, um, which, is a, which is a real shame. He still has to wait for that first podium, um, his first podium since back in 2011. Um, and the first podium ever for MV um, in World Superbikes. Um, but they are getting there. They are getting there without question. They they are making strides, that team, and they are looking, as it seems, to move to two bikes for next season, and uh, we don't yet know whether Cami will be on either of them. Um, but perhaps maybe that's a sign that MV are going to maybe perhaps pump a little bit of money into that team. Um, and if they do, it's clear that there is they've, they've got something there with that bike. It's clearly a very competitive bike. If they can just throw a bit of development at it, they might well be able to bridge that gap to the guys up ahead of them because Cami is doing the Lord's work on it right about now. Um, another team that made a step forward this weekend um, were Milwaukee Aprilia. Now, this was a team that tested at Portimao before the season started. Um, so perhaps that benefited them more than any developmental pieces on the bike. Um, but Dre, however it came about, this was a result in a weekend that Milwaukee Aprilia badly needed. Absolutely. They've been they've been sputtering and sputtering pretty much all season long, batting around, you know, positions five to ten, really. So the fact they were up there challenging for a podium was definitely a step in the right direction. Um, 
for for a prettier going forward and Eugene Laverty I think was fantastic out there both races he was doing a really really good job but and he, he, you could see he was having to ride the nuts off that thing to keep up with Marco Melandri mm. he, he was he was really really close on many occasions but obviously just not quite able to to put him home but uh yeah just a just a again, a re- again he was really really solid but you know it's just one of the things where the bike is fundamentally well I think it really struggled um, in terms of tyre wear. I mean, the tyres completely went off the Aprilia in the second half of that race, and it really hurt them. Yeah, it was really striking in race one how far the Aprilia just tumbled down the field as the likes of Camille, Vandermark, <laughs> and Torres came past them. Um, from second and third on the grid in race one, Laverty and Savadori ended up seventh and eighth. Um, in that race so they only just managed to keep themselves inside the positions which would have given them a good starting spot for race two um, mm-hmm. otherwise if they'd finished falling even further back they might well have found themselves 10th back on the grid um, for that second race but they um, they started up on the second row and Lamity converted that into fourth which is their best result of the season um, for that team um, both Lamity and Salvadori had had a fifth place apiece um, prior to um, Portimao fourth is their best of the season Laverty not quite getting the better of his best mate Marco Melandri um, in race two uh, and finishing in fourth position um, one other team that were looking for improvements last weekend were Honda um, and Dre on Friday it looked like they got them with Stefan Bridal first time for him this season that he had automatically made his way through into Super Bowl yeah. 2 he had made it through to Super Bowl 2 on two other occasions this season but he'd done it via the Q1 route um, rather than through free practice. Um, so, promising steps forward being made by Honda right until the moment Stefan Bridal crashed and injured his wrist. Of course! <laughs> uh, like, uh, I, I, Honda, man. I, I just don't get how they can continue to be so unlucky. Yeah. Um, it's 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 not been good, um, to say the least, um, on their part. But, uh, you know, you, you, you could take a little bit of solace in, you know... The, the bike seems to have genuinely gotten better and you know there is something to be said for that um they are doing a very solid job right now and again they they seem to take a step in the right direction now while Kartak actually did a pretty solid job especially in race two to get into top 10 but that's so like they're, they're frustrating because they know they're capable of better mm. and then brother had to go and get hurt so not even they can't even take full credit for that one because it would just you know not where they were or not where they should be really mm. yeah so. and they uh, they did get a top 10 result out of the weekend thanks to um their uh second rider that they brought in for the weekend the japanese takumi takahashi um who's an hrc test rider although it has to be said that 10th place in race two um came by virtue of the fact that there were only 13 finishers in the end and um or 13 on the lead lap and one of those chevy forest had fallen off and takahashi yeah. was nearly a minute off the winner um, in that second race, which saw a lot of dropouts. But, hey, a result is a result for that team. And Takahashi getting a top 10 on his debut weekend um, in World Superbikes. Um, but that team still needs a lot of improvement yet before they are where they need to be. Davide Giuliano, incidentally, will be returning to that team for Magni Corn next time out before Takahashi is back on the bike oh. for Jerez um, the following round after that. Uh, Takahashi, um, I'm assuming, uh, a Japanese Superbike round clashes this weekend, which is why, or next weekend, should I say, which is why I can't go to Magni Corn. Giuliano is back then before Takahashi returns for uh, Jerez um, in October. Um, now, the race two, or the two race results, should I say, starting with race one, Ray the winner from Davies and Melandri, that was your podium. Then came Camille, who just missed out. Vandermark in fifth, Torres on the BM sixth, ahead of Laverty and Salvadori on the Aprilias, Chevy Forres in ninth, and Roman Ramos completing the top ten uh, in that opening race. Race two, Ray the winner again, 
Um, just a 5.8 seconds clear in race two from ninth on the okay. grid. Um, with Vandermark in a career best second, Melandri third again, Laverty fourth, best of the season. Jordi Torres fifth on the BM, uh, completing a consistent weekend for him with two top six results. Lorenzo Savadori in sixth, uh, Tati Mercado seventh, and West, who, as I mentioned earlier on, has moved on to bigger and better things. Most notably, a Pedicini Kawasaki Superbike. He was eighth, um, ahead of Ertan Badabini ninth, and the aforementioned Takahashi in tenth on the Honda. Championship standings then, Jonathan Ray leads it by 120 points from Tom Sykes. Um, I mean, of course, increased that by 50 at the weekend. Um, if he wins race one at Magni Court, he is the 2017 world champion. Um, Chaz Davis's race two crash has been brought into sharper focus by the fact that he missed out on the chance to take second in the championship uh, from Tom Sykes. As a result of that crash, he is still 15 points behind um, his fellow Brit in third. Marco Belandri is 46 points behind his teammate in fourth, with Alex Lowe's in fifth, just three ahead of Vandermark now in sixth. Terry Forres is seventh, a further 10 behind Vandermark. Leon Camille eighth on 133 points, 36 behind Lowe's in fifth. So, 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th can still change in the three rounds that remain. Jordi Torres is only three behind Camier as it goes in ninth, so he's right in the mix as well with Eugene Laverty completing the top 10 on the first of the Aprilias. Now, as far as the other class in this uh, World Superbike paddocks, as I mentioned, Kawasaki won every race uh, over the course of the weekend. They won the Superstock 1000 class as well by virtue of the Turkish rider Toprak Razgatioglu, which has moved him right into championship contention. It's a difficult name to say and to spell, but you're going to have to become familiar with that name because when we get to the news later on, he is one fast young rider. We'll come on to yes, him sir. a little bit later on. Before then, though, we're going to head to Alton Park and cover the BSB from last weekend as the showdown got underway um, in Cheshire. And um, we're going to start by talking about a rider who's actually not in the showdown at all uh, because this weekend really did, or really should, Dre, belong to one man, and that's Dan Limfoot. A brilliant race win last time out at Silverstone in appalling conditions. Um, a race that even Limfoot has since admitted wasn't really a race. Um, but mm -hmm. his performance at Alton Park really were the performances of a rider who had that weight off his shoulders and was looking like a BSB winner. Um, a brilliant race two victory that we'll come on to in a moment, but really, he was robbed in race one. Yeah, absolutely devastating amount of bad luck that Honda Honda had their first real technical breakdown of the season and his bike blew up with Limford having a comfortable lead up front. He was 10 seconds up the road. Come on, man! <laughs> Like, that is just so unfair and, you know, a real shame that uh, he basically missed out on that through just sheer awful luck um, that he had missed out on that. And again, it, it, it was going to be a nailed on race win as an absolutely conclusive um, victory. But again, just just very, very unlucky that uh, he had missed out. And yeah, like 
Linfoot, I mean, he he's, he was fast enough, and he's had a really he was really solid in race in you know, last time out in Silverstone, and again was just great all weekend. Just didn't quite have it in him to to make that one work, unfortunately. And yeah, just super unlucky there. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's a real shame because again, Linfoot has really turned it up the last couple of rounds, and of all times, it was Honda to let him down. It was this one. Yeah, it is great though. Although he didn't have the results to show for in race one, and of course he did in race two with the win. Um, it is great to see a rider like we've seen in the past with with riders and drivers in in formula motorsport where you could see a visible transformation when they get the first win uh where you instantly yeah. just see a, them step up a level um uh, with that weight off their shoulders and we, you could visibly see that with Linfoot, couldn't you and obviously in race one he was on another planet to anyone else in the wet conditions before his honda went pop um and then i was so delighted to see him then get the win in race two because the last lap nail biters are the kind of races that for the last two years we've been gutted to say that Dan Linfoot hasn't quite won them. He's always ended up on the wrong side of those race those races where it's been a, a last lap dogfight. But on this occasion, up against the championship contender in the one Haslam, he was on the right side of it. Yep, he was right there the whole the whole race. Haslam, you know, he likes the harder compound tire, so he was he, he was going to have a more stable bike in the second half of the race. He was able to weather the early storm of, of Jake Dixon's early pace because he was on the more aggressive zero tire which is softer um but again no matter which way you slice it unfortunately um yeah like for the Haslam on this case not quite enough Linfoot did just enough to hold on over the line by I think it was something like six hundredths of a second it was super close but Linfoot won the dogfight there just had that again as you say that win has maybe given Linfoot an extra level of confidence because I've never seen him run like that before in a dogfight fantastic no because I, I remember th- that when Linfoot and Haslam were approaching Lodge Corner on the final lap I, I sort of had the images in my head of or Halloran beating Limfoot at the final corner at Snetterton last year, or Shaky beating Limfoot earlier this year in a race that got red flanked just after Limfoot being overtaken, thinking, don't tell me this is going to happen against Limfoot. But it's like, no, no, he's won this one. Like, he, he really is. Yeah. He really is a changed rider. Um, and <laughs> he finally got that first win. And um, Limfoot, in many ways, kind of speaking about the conditions at, at Silverstone, even though he won the race, he even pretty much said that this really kind of felt like his genuine first win. Um, the the race he got at Alton Park, the second race where he beat Haslam over the line. Even, he said, even Dan admitted that. <laughs> yeah, even he even Dan admitted it. He said, "My first place at Silverstone wasn't the best way to win a race with so many riders crashing out. So to do this here means a lot. I feel this is my first genuine win, and that's a nice feeling as I've been close on so many occasions. And I don't think anyone, probably maybe Leon Haslam, uh, would be disappointed um, to have seen Dan get that win, especially after what had happened to him." 24 hours right. earlier in race one and what's interesting hearing from dan after the race weekend is that he's still not guaranteed to be on that honda next year of course he's been thoroughly outshone for most of the year by jason halloran of course so halloran was in the showdown linfoot wasn't and perhaps if harvey belcher and the honda team boss was being uh, brutally honest with himself he might have wished the other honda was winning the race uh in race two given that he's a championship contender um but dan linfoot said himself he says i'm keen to stay with honda but i don't know if they feel the same um perhaps given what they've seen for most of this year. Well, if he continues with these performances, Honda would be crazy not to keep him. Exactly, because the, the, the guy stepped up all of a sudden, and 
yeah, it's probably been at O'Halloran's expense right now, given he didn't have the best start to his showdown season. But again, Honda's got two great riders there. They have two guys that are capable of showdowns. I think both of them have made the showdown in the past. Mm. So they've got an excellent team around themselves. So why would you want to change that? They've, they've clearly got something here. Embrace that. Yeah, and they're clearly <laughs> the only team at the moment in any motorsport that seem to be making that new Fireblade work. Because um, it's, it's looking a real contender. O'Halloran on the pole at Silverstone. Um, and they've now won two of the last three races and really should have won all three with Limfoot. Um, if you include the second race at Silverstone, the two we saw at Alton, um, they're in brilliant form. Um, but as far as the showdown's concerned, then the six championship contenders that were decided after Silverstone, um, Shaky Byrne went in leading it by a couple of points from Leon Haslam and Josh Brooks, uh, with Jake Dixon also right in contention. Peter Hickman was in there as well, and Jason O'Halloran was very much the outsider of the six. Um and after round one of three of the showdown, Drake, it is unquestionably swung Leon Haslam's way. Yeah, just like that, Leon Haslam, who was, again, it was splitting her along, having a very, very bad, like, end of regular season, so to speak, and having a, a set of awful results. Haslam said he was pushing the reset button going into Olsen Park. And just like that, he's in control of the championship again. Why? Because showdown. That's why. Um, so, yeah, just like that, Asim's pretty much got a race in hand on the entire showdown field now. With only five races to go as they head to Assen, um, all of us, and hang on, we all know Haslam was very strong around there last year. Doubled it last all year. Sudden, yeah, like all of a sudden, Haslam's got a really, really good chance of winning the championship now. Mm, yeah, and it's it's... I mean, it, there's two ways of looking at it, I suppose. You can talk about how Haslam stepped up, but also how some of his rivals have perhaps dropped a level uh, in recent yeah. rounds, um, which we'll come on to in a second. But but Haslam has timed this brilliantly, has he? I mean, of course, he'd won a nail-biter at Cadwell Park where he pretty much held a train of riders behind him um, back in August to take his first win since Alton Park back in the end of April, beginning of May, the Bank Holiday weekend, back in the mm -hmm. spring, which was his last win prior to Cadwell. Um, but as you say, it just goes to show the, the power of the showdown and how the reset can really just completely trans transform a season. Um, and Haslam, as you say, he was so strong. It was one crash really last year that cost him that showdown chance. That one crash at Donington um, that yeah. handed a whole heap of points to Shaky Byrne and meant that Haslam had to do the chasing. Now, Haslam's in the position where he doesn't really have to do the chasing, does he? He can really watch what the likes of Brooks and Byrne do um, and try and manage that lead with with Brands Hatch on the horizon. Still five races to go, um, but one more race win, and then Haslam suddenly got the championship right in the power of his hands, where seconds would be enough. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be out of anybody else's hands if he, can win, if he wins races one at Aston. So, yeah, Haslam all of a sudden has is, is just become championship favourite. It's, it's it's mental how, like, again, the showdown is, you know, this forced reset has all of a sudden pushed everybody up. Um, and now Haslam's the guy to chase because a bunch of the bigger rivals like Dixon and Shaky had pretty poor weekends by their standards. And amazingly now, leading the chase of Leon Haslam is not Shaky Byrne, but Josh Brooks, um, who's up to second place in the British Superbike Championship. Um, 22 points behind Leon Haslam, which with five races ago is still very much retrievable. Um, and by no means, Dre, did Brooks have a bad weekend at Alton Park. Third in race one um, and fifth in race two, which is kind of why, where he's been all season, save for those two standout results, the two victories he's had. Um, but unfortunately, with such a, a short championship sort of sprint that we've got at the moment, third and fifth just doesn't quite cut it, does it? No, he's, he's going to need wins. Again, it's going to be wins are the, are the best way to control your own destiny right now. And again, like Brooks has only had a couple to, to speak of all season long. He's not 
again, one of the biggest Brooks criticisms of this season has been his consistency, mm. or lack of it, so to speak. So, the way it's going right now, he needs wins, and I'm not sure where those are going to come from right now. No, no, he was as surprised as all of us. He said, uh, I did the best I could in the circumstances we had. The second race was dry, but the bike didn't perform as it did uh, earlier in the weekend, because he was very, very quick on Friday, and he's actually admitted himself. He says, I need to win races at Assen. That's all there is to it. If we're going to win the championship this year, the bike has to be right, and I have to ride it perfectly every time out. That's what we've got to focus on. That's what we're trying to achieve. You try to do that every weekend, but that's clearly not uh, clearly what needs to happen now for us to have a chance. So I think we're going to see the uh, the Rostrum or Hospital, Josh Brooks at Assen, um, in next time well, out. And he clearly recognises now that it's win or bust um, to have any hope of chasing down Haslam, because Haslam's clearly not going away at the moment. Um, and amazingly, Dre, from runaway favourite for most of the summer, Shaky Burns' season has kind of hit the buffers, hasn't it? He's not won now since his dominant weekend um, at Snetterton, where we all expected him to be dominant, and he was. Uh, and we thought that was going to mark the uh, the start of another dominant rise to the championship for Shaky Burn. Um, but it's amazing how it's all plateaued. And, I mean, the poor guy, if he doesn't rate it pause, in race one, he couldn't even see where he was going. Yeah, well, he's, he his his visor had fog, his anti fog had not worked on it on his helmet visor in race one, so he could barely see where he was going in those wet conditions in race one. So yeah, it was basically shaky. He was probably riding on tenterhooks because he had no idea where he was, uh, which is terrifying to say the least. And uh, you may have seen it on the internet, the the video on Eurosport's Twitter account where they showed Shaky Burn visibly pissed. Yeah throwing his helmet in, into, in, into the back in, out of sheer frustration because he knew how significant this was. And he knew that, well, he's now on the back foot and he's now in big trouble to retain this championship. Mm. Um, he's got problems now. Yeah, he, he's, he's 23 gonna, he's gonna points have... off the lead now for Shaky Burn with those five races to go. Um, and it's what's worrying, I suppose, for Shaky Dre is it's not just Alton Park where it's, it's gone sort of wrong for Shaky Burn, but it's now four rounds um, in a row where we've not really seen him contend for a win or look like winning a race. Because um, Brands Hatch GP was where he took his double, his dominant double, um, yeah. hot on the heels of the double I mentioned a moment ago at Snetterton. Um, he then went to Truxton around that we all thought was going to be strongest of the season, a fourth and a DNF there, a third and a DNF at Cadwell, only one finish at Silverstone, of course, where he finished third in that second race. He didn't finish either of the two rain-effective races. And then only ninth and seventh at Alton Park for the second time out, where, of course, he won right. earlier in the season. So it's almost like Ducati's lost a step. Yeah, it doesn't seem that like Glenn Irwin's been more of the more of a threat for race wins lately than Shaky has. It's been very bizarre what's going on in that Paul Bird unit right now, where Ducati, again, again you're right, they may have very easily have lost a step between now um, and the showdown rounds. It looks like all of a sudden that they're still legitimately struggling right now, and they haven't really got a solid answer as to why. All of a sudden, Ducati isn't what, what they were earlier this season when Shaky was able to win, win races at will right now. He's having to work really hard for it, and it's not coming together so easily for him now. No, it isn't. And uh, he said himself, he says, we need to figure out why these past four rounds haven't gone our way, which indicates that he's not sure himself um, why that Panigale is just not quite working right about now. So that team 
um, has some answers to find before they uh, hop on the ferry to the Netherlands next weekend for Assen, um, around where, as, as we mentioned a moment ago, Haslam and Shaky went to war last year and Haslam took the two wins, where Shaky probably decided, given he had a championship lead in his pocket, to take the two seconds. He can't do that next weekend. Um, he, like Brooks, is going to have to go for wins um, next weekend. So it'll be interesting to see how all three of those men um, approach it. Um, they're not the only three in this championship equation by any means. There are still... I think we probably agree there are four who can still win this. We'll come on to the two that probably can't in a moment. But um, if one rider of the four championship contenders had no luck last weekend, it was poor Jake Dixon, um, who qualified brilliantly on pole position on Saturday, only to suffer mm -hmm. a crash on his slowdown lap in the warm-up in the wet on Sunday morning when he wasn't even pushing. The bike just fell from underneath him, um, damaged itself, ended up vaulting on top of the tyre wall, damaging itself. The dash was ripped off the bike and all sorts had gone wrong with it, which meant the RAF regular and reserves Kawasaki team had a race against time to get it ready for race one, a race that they only just won, but they didn't win it in time to get him on the grid. He had to start from the pit lane, um, putting Jake Dixon's very championship at risk. And um, another key question, I suppose, Dre, is this kid up to it? Can this kid win a British Superbike Championship? I think pit lane to fourth answered our question. Um, yeah, the kid's really frigging good. Um, um, just, just, just in case you were unaware. Yeah, he, he, he's super good. Um, yeah, a, a magnificent comeback from Jake Dixon in race one there. And again, was right in the mix in race two as well, where he was right in the conversation to win. Um, he's doing a tremendous job right now. And he's, he's showing that he's as good as anybody in BSB right now. And again, still only 21 years old. He is a supreme talent. Yeah. Um, and he's only going to get better as time goes on. Um, my gosh, that was an excellent, excellent comeback. That was a, a, a title saving performance from Dixon, I would argue. Um, and yeah, looking forward to seeing what else he can do in Assen and whatnot, because, my gosh, he, 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 he's, he's incredible. That was a superb performance. One of the best I've seen in BSB all season. Yeah, uh, you weren't the only one who was saying that. It was, I think there were a lot who were saying after that race one that that is as impressive a ride as they've seen in British Superbikes for a long, long time. It's come from the pit lane. And a pit lane start in, in British Superbikes or in motorcycle racing in general is probably more of a disadvantage than it is in um, Formula 1. So people who associate pit lane starting Formula 1 where you have to wait for the last car to pass the end of pit lane and off you go. Mm. It's not the same in BSB or in Superbikes or in MotoGP. You've got to wait for the safety car to go past um, and then you go. So he, he had to wait for the entire field to clear off and then they pretty much weren't in sight by the time Jake Dixon emerged out of pit lane. And as I say, yeah. his weekend just had no luck. Cause even by the time he'd salvaged it and got himself up to fourth, he was chasing down Josh Brooks at a vast rate of knots and the red flags came out because of Linfoot's Honda dumping oil down. Had that race run to its full distance, then Dixon was going to catch and pass Brooks by the end as well and get on the podium in race one. Um, right. So even, even when he'd salvaged it with an absolutely mega ride, they, there was still one more stick in the tail to cost him some points uh, in that first race. Uh, in the second mm -hmm. race as well, he had a very solid sixth ahead of Shaky Burn, Jason O'Halloran, um, two of his championship uh, rivals. Um, and as a result, Jake Dixon is 30 points off the championship leader, Leon Haslam. Um, only seven behind Shaky Byrne and eight behind Brooks. So I guess if we're considering Brooks and Byrne still in the championship argument, we still have to consider Dixon too. Absolutely. And I still think Dixon's got better chance of winning races right now than Josh Brooks does. So I think he's got a better chance than Brooks at the moment because Dixon's pace has been electric the last few rounds. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, looking forward to seeing how it turns out. Yeah, not out of it yet, Jake Dixon, by any means at all. Um, unfortunately, though, I think, Dre, we probably are agreed that um, time is up for Peter Hickman and Jason O'Halloran. Um, Hickman is now 41 points off the lead in fifth on the Smith Racing BM, and O'Halloran is some 54 points off the lead um, on the Honda. Um, for two riders, I think their poor weekends came at just the wrong time. Indeed, like I think that was right about Hickman. Uh, I think it was. Right. I think the Hickman, the Hickman thing was. That I, I just don't think he had enough top level results, like wins and podiums, to really, you know, contend like that. Unfortunately, um, whereas you know Halloran again, same sort of deal, just not quite at the very highest level. Um, so you know, like if, if you if you're not going to win and if you're not going to be in the top three on a regular basis, you're probably not going to win the showdown because I mean after all, he is the only like the, the showdown's never been never been run from outside of the top three, and Hickman mm-hmm. and Hannah were guys that weren't really in the top three for the majority of the season. So I can't say I'm too surprised. I mean, great effort given especially for the especially for the Honda guys out there who, you know have done a tremendous job in making that Fireblade competitive to the point where it's gone from zero to race winner in the space of less than a season. Um, so they've done, they've done a tremendous job with that. Just, I think it's probably just come a little bit too late for Adder. And, and, you know, a salute to the Smiths racing team. You know, they are a small family outfit, and Hickman's been fantastic in carrying that team. This is the, it's the first time a Smiths racing bike has ever been in the showdown format as it is. So they're already punching above their weight, and Hickman's been great this season. Um, just not quite there on this occasion, but um, it's proven that Hickman is a quality rider who probably just needs the right bike, really. And he'll be up there again, no problem. Yeah, and Hickman's had a brilliant season. Whatever whatever happens, not just in BSB, but with his road racing results as well. He's had so much success on the roads this year um, to, um, to last many people's seasons. So he's had a cracking season, whatever happens in the two remaining rounds. Um, if you're looking for stories outside of the show now, and there were no shortage of them at Alton Park last weekend, um, with a couple of riders taking um, very notable podium finishes. Um, John Hopkins was one of them podiums in consecutive race weekends now for Hopkins because he took a podium at Silverstone and Dre a podium again at Alton Park as well second to Haslam in that first race and um, the timing of the red flag came at just a point where Hopkins was only 0.3 behind Haslam so it could quite easily have been a win um, had uh, Hopkins been ahead at the time of the red flag and I don't think any motorcycle racing fan is ever disappointed to see that uh, that smiley American face on a rostrum are they? No, uh, Hopkins is great, great rider, great personality, great asset to have in BSB, and I'm glad that Hopkins has got one podium to take away from an otherwise pretty miserable year at the Motor Rapido Ducati team, where their bike's just not been up to snuff compared to some of the other Ducatis in the field, so I feel bad for Hopkins in that regard, but I'm glad he's got He's got this result to hang on for as a highlight for the season. That was a great performance in in race one, and a race he could have very well won if if, if it had gone the distance, but um, not quite on this occasion. Yeah, not quite. The other surprise podium, though, um, has got us all talking since since Alton Park and talking about a star of the future who's increasingly becoming a star now. Um, pff, Dre, where on earth did Bradley Ray come from in race two? Nowhere. That's what I'll tell you. Um, nowhere. Bradley, like Bradley Ray, has for all intents and has had a very solid rookie season in BSB. But where the hell did this come from? Like, like a podium finish and a legitimate chance of the win. Yeah, he's that was one off the win. 
yeah, a brilliant performance from Brandy Ray. And let's not forget, he is 20 years old. His nuts have barely dropped yet. And there he, there he is <laughs> at, the, at the front of the BSB field there like that. Um, incredible performance. And I have to say, how smug was his dad and family yeah. in that team? Uh, like they were like, yeah, we always believed in him. He was, all, we always thought he was going to be this good. And this is a team that's got Sylvain Gintoli on the same bike. I'm not mad about this at all. Um, but um, yeah, you could see just by how smug their family was. They they kind of saw this was coming. Like they, they if they didn't, they were certainly playing it off very well. That's for sure because um, they were so delighted. Like, you could hear the family as the podium was going on. They were so delighted with Bradley Ray up there, and rightly so. It was a phenomenal performance from Bradley Ray there, and hopefully the first of many a podium for the young lad. Yeah, and it's it's as you mentioned, he's he's got a he's on the same bike as Sullivan Gintoli, and he's actually ahead of him in the championship, which it was just goes to show what an amazing job he's doing. He only turned twenty in May this year, so he was nineteen when the season started. Um, Bradley Ray, what a season he's had. He is the leading Suzuki rider in the championship, which just goes to illustrate that this is no... It, it might be a one-off result in terms of it's the first time we've seen him on a podium, but it's certainly not the first time he's been the lead Suzuki on track. Um, he's done it a number of times um, this season. And you, you look at the way his results have progressed as the season's gone, and you could see the progression um, as his rookie season's gone on. Started with a couple of points on his debut round um, back at Donington Park at the start of the season. Um, he then went on to finish eighth at the second round at Brands Hatch Indy. Um, he had another eighth place um, at Brands Hatch on the GP circuit, then another at Thruxton. Then he moved up to two top six results at Silverstone um, in the mixed conditions. Yep, even in that race when only seven finished, Bradley Ray, the rookie, was one of them. Um, just mm-hmm. showing that while more experienced riders fell down, he didn't. Uh, and then moving on to Alton Park, seventh in race one, which already was just one shot of his season's best, and then a third in race two, when he could easily have won the race on the Suzuki, become the first Suzuki, or the first rider to win uh, a British Superbike race on the new Suzuki. Um, And if a star wasn't already born, it certainly is now, uh, in the form of Bradley Ray. What a young rider he is, and what a rider he is going to go on to be uh, in the future. It's all of a sudden, Drake, we've we've spoken in the past about where the younger riders are coming from, given that this British Superbike Championship has been dominated by riders in their 30s and or 40s. Um, The likes of Haslam and Bert, and Brooks, um, uh, Ellison, who's been up the front in recent years as well, who's in his 30s. This is just the right time, isn't it, for British Superbikes to see the likes of Dixon and Ray coming through to show that the future is very bright for British Superbikes. Yeah, there is a future generation that's ready to go out there and perform at this level in BSB. Like, like I, I always was starting to think it's a bit of an old man's game at the top with... You know, guys like Linfoot, Shaky, Haslam, all in their 30s to upper 30s, even Shaky in his early 40s now. There were the top guys in the sport. Brooks, another guy in, there, in his in his in his mid thirties. But again, we had again Dixon is the youngest ever showdown contender at twenty one. Bradley Ray just got on the podium at age twenty. Um, the young talent is there and it's coming through. And I'm glad that we we're seeing them get opportunities at the very highest level because the only way you're ever going to see these guys get better is if you throw them into the deep end and. If anything, Bradley Ray was a late bloomer. He could have been in BSB two years ago, according to his dad. He could have been in there as an 18-year-old, which is which is a terrifying thought. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that there is a, a, a new generation of young talent coming through um in 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 the british superbike championship because that's going to be the future of your of of your series going forward and if that's the case then dixon and ray are going to go on to very bright things indeed yeah and as far as the future of british superbike is concerned we haven't even mentioned likes of luke mossy who um former riders cup leader uh luke mossy lost that at the weekend luke mossy who incidentally 
Um, turns 25. He's positively ancient by uh, the comparison to Ray and Dixon. Turns 25 uh, tomorrow as we record this. Yesterday as you're listening to this. Uh, September mm-hmm. 22nd. Happy birthday to Luke Mossy. Um, but yeah. um, but it, I, I, have, I have to say this, and it's I, it, I don't take any great pride in saying this, but Luke Mossy decided the conditions at Alton Park were not safe enough in terms of his injuries to ride. He's clearly not fully recovered yet from the injuries which uh, ruled him out. Um, of the Cadwell Park round, um, which, if nothing else, tells us that he certainly wasn't fully fit when he rode at Silverstone in conditions far worse than Alton Park. Exactly. Um, it's. It's. I mean, it's. It's by all accounts, it now pretty much seems, at least from where I'm sitting, that Luke Mossy was rushed back into Silverstone, yeah. and he, 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 he felt like he had to ride for the sake of protecting his showdown spot. And it and for what gain? Because he didn't make the showdown, and race two probably should never have happened. Also, race three, I should say, should never have happened at Silverstone, really, given its awful condition. So it's another one of those eyebrow-raising moments. And I'm, I'm gonna, and from now on, I'm going to call it on BSB hashtag because showdown yeah. as a result of this. Like, a, a, so you, you can probably sit in the same salty garage as Christian in right now, going that race three should never have happened. Why hashtag because showdown? That's why. And yeah. If, if Mossy clearly, well, I mean that is that is concrete evidence yeah. that Luke was far from a hundred percent at Silverstone. Yeah, he races at Silverstone on his first ride back from injury, and then two week two weeks more have passed, and yet he now decides it's not worth it. It's like, yeah, it's like yeah, that's pretty much says it all. Um, unfortunately, uh, for Luke Mossy, um, who as mentioned didn't race in either of the two races in the mixed conditions on the Sunday. Um, and as a result, has lost the lead of the chase for the paperweight. That now goes to Christian Iden, um, who finished oh. ninth in race two, although crashed out of a likely podium in race one um, himself. Otherwise, he'd have a comfortable lead. As far as the showdown goes, Haslam leads it on 5-7-1. That's a 22-point lead over Josh Brooks in second, 23 over Bird in third, and 30 over Dixon in fourth. It is likely to be one of those four that wins this year's British Superbike Championship. Uh, Peter Hickman's fifth. He trails the championship leader now by 41, with O'Halloran in fifth, a further 13 points back. As far as the Riders' Cup is concerned, if you're even remotely bothered about that, Christian Iden leads it on 179, three ahead of Luke Mossy. Christian, uh, James Ellison, should I say, is now right in contention to win that, if he cares. Uh, he's in ninth on 156, that's 23 behind Iden. Uh, with Dan Linfoot, the form man, it has to be said, in BSP, <laughs> now 44 behind Iden and into the top 10 outright in the British Super Bike Championship. Then come John Hopkins and Brad Ray, the heroes of Alton Park. On to the news, and let's start by heading to Hereth because the latest round of the FIM CEV Championship uh, took place last weekend uh, in Spain, starting with the Moto3 Junior World Championship, who raced twice uh, last weekend. First race went to Denis Foggia, who uh, we're going to come back to in a moment. He was on the uh, Junior VR46 team KTM. He won race one in the end, but crashed in race two to undo 
uh, all of his hard work. He does lead the championship, though, by some 60 points with three races to go. So Fodger could clinch it next time out uh, at Aragon. Jeremy Alcoba is his nearest challenger on the Estrella Galicia Honda. He could only finish sixth in race one before crashing himself in race two uh, and failing to score. Um, Vicente Perez is up to third on the Avintia KTM. He's another of their junior riders. Uh, he was the only rider in the top six in the championship to finish that second race. He came second behind the eventual winner, Ai Ogura of Japan. Um, and Perez is up to third in the championship, just ahead of Alonso Lopez and Kazuki Masaki, with Sergio Garcia, uh, not the one wearing a green jacket, he's a different one. Um, he was sixth in the championship on 80 points, just ahead of Jean Messia, who of course has been seen on uh, Moto3 World Championship grids recently. Um, he didn't quite acquit himself quite as well back in the Junior World Championship. He only scored one point across the two races and has dropped to seventh in the championship, just ahead of Agora, the race two winner. Um, the Moto2 class um, in the FIM CEV saw Eric Granado take second place and uh, lose five points of his championship lead um, to Ricky Cardus, the uh, former Grand Prix rider. Of course, we saw in a KTM earlier this year. Cardus taking what is now his fifth, fourth win, should I say, of the season at Jerez uh, to close to within 20 points of the championship leader of Granado. Stephen Odendahl, the defending champion, finished third at Jerez. And trails the championship leader by 43 points. Um, he is just ahead of Hector Garzo, the Tech 3 rider who impressed us all at the Saxon Ring earlier this year. He is fourth in the championship. And Joe Roberts, who is now a regular Grand Prix rider, he is still continuing in the CEV for the rest of the season because he is a regular rider in that championship with the AGR team. He finished sixth at Hareth and is fifth in the championship. And finally, the European Talent Cup. One of the many talent cups that Dorna have an interest in these days. Manuel Gonzalez leads the championship despite only finishing seventh in either race um, at Jerez last weekend. He leads his uh, he leads the Dane Simon Jesperson by 25 points. Um, they have three races to go, two of which are at Aragon next time out before the season finale at Valencia in November. The wins at Jerez last time out uh, went to um, two Spaniards, Francesco Gomez and Andreas. Perez. Uh, now back to World Superbikes and uh, news as far as next year is concerned. Um, we'll have news on a rider who's entering the grid in a moment uh, for next year. But first, the regulations, Dre, which have been the subject of a lot of chat over the course of the summer as everyone looks to try and clip the wings of Kawasaki and Ducati, who have dominated this championship for two or three years now. And it looks as if the uh, method of clipping their wings may well be a rev limit. <laughs> Anything, hey, anything to bring them down, right? Yes. Um, it's it's one of those things where if, if we mentioned it last year that basically the, the reverse grid rule for all intents and purposes was a way to try and bring Kawasaki and Chikati back down to earth. It's failed on every level. Mm. Uh, but hey, who's counting? Um, so now they've yeah, plan B. Like now you've opened Pandora's box. Now you've got to really, you've got to keep going this because to go, well, like going back is your way of saying, well, you failed. Yeah. So they've got to, they've got to find another way of doing this now. And hey, why not a, a rev limit? And yeah, it's one way of, it's one way of looking at the situation and going, okay, it's a way of bringing Kawasaki down. But at the same time, you've got to make the debate and say to yourself, does Kawasaki deserve to have their wings clipped for being that good at what they do? Mm, and yeah. You know, it's balance of performance is a tricky issue um, in 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 many forms of motorsport. I know RJ, if he was on here, would talk about that happening in Super GT lot, and it works very well over there as it goes. Saying, hey, you can develop what you want. You, you need but, you need every manufacturer to buy in, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And well, 
why on earth would Kawasaki buy into their own team nerfed? Of course they're not going to do that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, do you do you really want to piss off your biggest contributor to your series in Kawasaki right now? I, I'm not sure I w- I'd want to do that, but they have to do something because, as anybody will tell you, if your series is not entertaining, people are not going to watch, and you haven't got a competitive sport. And it's it's finding that fine line between competitive balance and entertainment, which is ultimately going to see if World Superbikes can survive or not. Because the way it's going right now, like Worlds is seemingly insistent on having Kawasaki and Ducati equalised, but there's no easy way of doing that right now. Yeah, I mean, just to explain what this might entail, this rev limit, um, the FIM and Dorna are looking to bring in a ruling which would require each manufacturer and each machine to rev no further than a percentage beyond its normal red line as a standard street bike. Um, so that red line may be different from manufacturer to manufacturer, but what they don't want is for manufacturers um, to be able to rev their superbikes a certain percentage beyond what their street bike can do. And Kawasaki, by all accounts, are revving their um, ZX-10R in superbike in the World Championship a lot higher than it would ever rev as a road bike. Um, The starting figure, according to MCN, is expected to be around 3.5%, roughly 500 revs. Uh, for a four-cylinder machine. Um, and crucially, it's the FIM who will decide where this perceived red line is. It won't be a figure drawn arbitrarily on a spec sheet by the manufacturer because uh, I think anyone who's picked up a, a brochure from any uh, car maker or motorcycle manufacturer is that they can sometimes be a bit economical with the figures <laughs> in their motorcycle <laughs> just, brochures. Just, just a tad. So, uh, so the FIM will decide that, what they see the red line as uh, on each manufacturer. Um what I see as interesting, and this almost takes us into British touring car um, territory with uh, the territory and the controversy we had in recent years with that series of uh, boost limits and all sorts of things in B- in BTCC, in that um, the World Superbikes will apparently, uh, FIM and Dorna, will still have authority to, once the season gets underway, make further changes. So if they deem that someone still has too much of an advantage, they can lower the ceiling for that red limit again which again brings in balance of performance which effectively means that FIM and Dorna may take a, a stance next year Dre halfway through the season if John Ray's still winning they might just bring that red limit even further down on the Kawasaki which again is moving the series into dangerous territory I don't want it to be a, I don't want it to be a, a social experiment to see how far to, you have to cripple yeah, Kawasaki well in order to success balance if you're going to do that yeah, like, sod it. Make, make him drag an anchor on the back of their bike for all we care. I mean, I don't want it to be an ex- an experimental plaything of a series to try and make it. Because you know what? I'm going to look at that and go, do I want to watch a series where the best bike is automatically crippled? I don't want to see that. I want to see these riders at their best. I don't want to see manufacturers crippled by by obtuse rules. I, I, I'm not a fan of that. I would, Like, if Kawasaki are the best team, in my opinion, let them be the best team. And... I I get why you have to make the series entertaining, but I don't. I'm not sure that bringing Yamaha or bringing others into play is going to automatically make the series more entertaining. Because I think this series and I think this season has been very good for the most part. It's had a handful of really good races in there amongst the elite riders in there. Like a series doesn't necessarily have to have twelve different guys that can win any given day for it to be entertaining. At least that's again that's just my opinion. We said earlier on, didn't we? One of the great World Superbike seasons had save for one exception only two winners all year and that's one of the great all-time seasons Bayliss versus versus uh colin edwards back in 2002 which culminated at miller um so yeah it's 
yeah, I think they're entering dangerous territory here with this. Um, and I'm not so sure Kawasaki buy into this. Although, having said that, um, ominous words from Jonathan Ray speaking after uh, race two when this uh, potential rule change was put to him. He said, if they take some revs off of us, for example, I do not think it's the be-all and end-all of the championship. It may mean that we will have to revert back to my flowing style that I had in the past to carry momentum, which is how I won my championship in 2015. Didn't go too badly that year, did he? No. Um, Whatever rule changes you throw at them, the best are still the best. Exactly. And should we deny them that because your series isn't entertaining enough? That's an interesting question. Yeah, that's a question that Dorna and FIM, as far as World 2 Bikes are concerned, are going to have to answer um, ahead of next year. Uh, one thing we do know next year is that we're going to have a very exciting rookie on the grid in 2018. Um, to my mind, the most exciting rookie since Michael van der Mark back in 2015. Um, I'm not including Nicky Hayden in that in terms of being a rookie because he didn't come up through the lower classes in World 2 Bikes. He moved across from MotoGP. Um, unlike this young rider, Toprak Razgatioglu. Um, it's a name that we're going to need a lot of practice to say, and we're going to get plenty of practice next year um, because he tested uh, the Pachetti Kawasaki that he will race next year uh, on Monday in the post-race test at Portimao. And Drake, he was already fourth quickest and only had Ray Davies and Malandria ahead of him. This kid's rapid. Um, yeah, this kid's a stud. Um, holy crap. Um, that is super impressive, no matter which way you slice it. That is so, so fast. Um, he was so fast uh, that it had people questioning whether he was on Tom Sykes' bike. Because, of course, Sykes wasn't there through injury. But, no, he was on the bike that Anthony West raced um, just 24 hours earlier at Portimao. And in the two races last weekend, Anthony West was 13th and 8th. Um, a collective, um, at best, 36 seconds off the win in race two. Um, and Graskatioglu immediately was fourth quickest on it just 24 hours later um so quick that in fact jonathan ray was very complimentary of him um when asked about it because the, the topic came up about what bike he was on um during that test jonathan ray's response when uh, steve english brought up the fact that um no david emmett in fact brought it up saying that he just found out that top rack was on the pachetti bike not tom sykes bike same bike as anthony west Steve Day's response was, I'll be surprised if there aren't MotoGP teams asking how to pronounce his name in three, four years. He's a weapon on everything he jumps on. Um, Jonathan Ray then said on Monday, according to Steve English, he is already 100% ready for SBK. He just needs to learn the lessons that come from racing. Jonathan Ray himself responded on Twitter by saying, I've ridden with a lot of riders, but he is maybe the most naturally gifted out there. Now that is high praise. That is an insane compliment to say that he is as naturally gifted as anyone in the series. It's not like it's not like World Superbikes is full of scrubs. There's a handful of really talented dudes in there. So he basically he's saying that Topra could walk into Worlds right now and be small and solid. And on a, on a satellite Kawasaki, which just says it all, really. The guys, the guys are stud. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Keenan Safoglu has created a monster because, <laughs> of course, he's a protege of Keenan. Um, oh, he, no. he runs the same number fifty-four um, as Keenan Safoglu, and he's also riding for the same Puchetti team. Uh, albeit Keenan, of course, wants to make his career. He's already pretty much made it clear that he sees his career as a super sport rider and nothing else. Um, <laughs> Top rack Razgatioglu clearly is going to be the Turk who's going to fly the flag in Superbike in the future, and who knows, maybe further on than that uh, in the future. And we've already got the uh, Onsu brothers who are currently dominating in Rebel Rookies and the uh, Asia Talent Cup. 
Um, and indeed, uh, Chabuk, the youngster who's raiding, uh, racing in the Super Sport 300 class as well. So um, it's always the way, isn't it? With Even with countries that don't necessarily have a, a heritage or history uh, in motorsport or in any kind of sport, once one flag bearer appears and dominates, a whole load of them follow on and want to emulate him. And um, that may well prove, as much as he's going to go down as perhaps the greatest Super Sport rider of all time, Dre, that might end up becoming Keelan Sofoglu's legacy of just leading the way and um, bringing on just a new generation of Turkish riders. That, that, well, that would be a pretty cool legacy to have. Like Not just the fact he's the greatest super sport rider of all time, but the fact he's able to bring bike racing into cultural relevance in an entire country. That would be huge. And um, yeah, that might be the, that might be Keenan's legacy, though, about inspiring Turkey to get into bike racing a... A, it's not a Spain, Italy, or a Great Britain in terms of producing talent, but hey, if the top rack's anything to go by, then hey, <laughs> he could be one to to inspire many more in the future. Yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll see Monaco racing at Istanbul Park again. We'll see. Uh, in the future, God, I miss that place. Uh, anyway, back to MotoGP news, and um, the news that was announced today as we record this, September 21st, the grid for 2018 is now officially complete. Xavier Simeon completes it. He is the second rider out of Intia. Um, and the crowd, as I think we've said before on this show, Dre, goes mild at that one. Oh, sorry. Simeon confirmed. Um, yeah, well, I'm pouring one out for Laurie Spass tonight, everybody. Yeah, even I am. And, and this is a guy that, like, you know, like, son of has got every reason to be salty at Laurie Spaz for his actions during during the World Superbike Championship a few years back. But it says a lot when even Sotheby, Yorkshire's finest over there in the corner, wants to pull one out for Laurie Spaz to trade to his Frenchman. Yeah, um, replaced but, uh, by a guy who is 21st in the Moto2 Championship uh, at the moment. I mean, look. Okay. Let's yeah, it's it's not it's not ideal. It's not a good look. I mean, it's symptomatic of a team in Avintia who need all the money they can get. Unfortunately, um, now that they're not being subsidised by donor money to put a Frenchman on the grid because they have one in Joan Zarco um, up at Tech Three, um, so Avintia now have to find for money some money from elsewhere. They found it from RTL. Um, and hey, let's. I mean, look, it, it's not a good look at the moment. But I suppose Dre, we've got to give Simeon a chance on a GV bike, hasn't he? Because Let's be fair. There were many like this time last year who were pretty much um, pouring cold water over the fact that Carol Abraham was a MotoGP rider again, and he's done a good job this year. So maybe, just maybe, Simeon will prove us wrong, right? Uh, I guess he's got a here. chance. I know you're trying. It's like maybe Simeon will be better on a bigger bike. Who knows? It could be. It could be a a style thing where maybe a style that translates better to MotoGP than it does in Moto2, which is a graveyard of talent sometimes um, as a series. So I'm reaching here. I know I'm reaching, but maybe Simeon can adapt better to, to what MotoGP provides compared to what Moto2 is. But I can't, I can't lie to you. I think we may have reached the bottleneck of, of, of MotoGP getting better and better every year. Because Xavier Simeon's been atrocious in Moto2 this season, and he was a lot better last year when he was at Grassini and was actually capable. He won a race and was challenged for two or three more. Um, and he's got he's taken a step backwards since then, and he's not really put that best foot forwards. But hey, maybe a new team and a fresh start will bring the best out of him again, but I'm not convinced. Yeah, I mean, it, 
in terms of Loris Baz, who of course is the rider who loses out to this, of course it's going to be uh, Simeon partnering uh, Tito Rabat at the Avintia team next season. Um, one of the less uh, inspiring rider pairings that we've ever seen in the Premier class. Uh, but of course, Loris Baz now has to try and find alternative employment elsewhere. And by elsewhere, I mean probably in another paddock because a guy of his size isn't going to be jumping on a Moto2 bike anytime soon. Um, so he's probably going to have to look to super bikes. And he's already said today um, that he is speaking to world superbike teams, including Tenkate, who, of course, run the Red Bull Honda team. Um, and it has to be said, Dre, that for, for a lot of his time in world superbikes, he couldn't really hold a candle to Tom Sykes. But on his day, he was brilliant in that, in that class. He has won world superbike races before on that Kawasaki. And there's no question, whatever any of us say about Loris Baz, if he does return to World Superbikes, he's going to be returning a much better rider than he left. Um, and he would be an asset to that paddock, wouldn't he? I'd say so. I'd absolutely agree. I think Baz, I think Baz has greatly improved in MotoGP. And I think he was, he, he's lost his seat having never really done anything wrong in MotoGP. No. He was always solid. Um, and he, he, he says this has been his best season in MotoGP by a mile. He's been He's outclassed Hector Barbera on an inferior bike. Um, so Baz is going, I mean, Baz openly said that like the top tier race winning seats are all taken in World Superbikes, but Hey, the, it looks like the favorite might be, it might be him going to Honda next year and he likes a project. So he says, Hey, maybe the Honda project might be the one that's best for him right now to lead the, uh, the Tenkarte Honda team. He's had talks with Tenkarte. So that could be the favorite as to where Baz ends up next year. And yeah, like it, it would be a good fit for a guy like him. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing um, it, it, where Baz turns out, and I think that you know it could it could be a good spot for him. As far as the rider he outclassed um, or has outclassed in MotoGP this year, Hector Barbara, we now know where he's going. Um, he's going back in time to the intermediate class, um, a class that I'm pretty sure he's won in the past. He is a 250 champion um, in the past, Hector Barbara. He is now going to be riding in Moto2 next year with the Pons team, a team that has become renowned in recent years for signing on the best young talent it can find. It's because a team that's run Alex Rins in Moto2, it ran Maverick Vinales in Moto2, it ran Paul Esparga and Tito Rabat in Moto2 as well. Um, Hector Barbara at a very different end of his career that any of those guys were at. Um, but it just, as you mentioned, Dre, it just it's symptomatic of this bottleneck now of talent where we're now seeing two quality riders from MotoGP, Sam Lowe's and Hector Barbara, now dropping down into front-running Moto2 teams. And they're going to be a force in that class. Yeah, Hector Barbara can... Eight could easily be very, very good in Moto2. We're seeing a Tony Elias sort of situation here, where Elias moved down in 2010 and then moved back up again when he won the title. Um, it could very well be that. Like Hector Barber might just be binding his time and seeing if a seat comes up again in a year's time or so. And he's going to be a force in that team, um, I reckon. Like Hector Barber is a very good rider, just maybe in the wrong scenario. I mean, he was all he's always been an excellent intermediate class rider. So. Yeah, it could be a good fit for someone like him back in Arimoto too, and a good team like the Pons team too. Mm, yeah, good team. And his teammate will be Lorenzo Baldassari, who departs the forward team um, for this season. Um, Baldassari, who really just stepped up a level and came on the scene last year. It was his breakout year where he took that first win at Mizano. Hasn't really followed that up with a great 2017, um, albeit he has had injuries this year because that horrendous crash he had at Assen, which really blew a hole in his season. Um, but he's an, an undoubted talent. 
um, in that team. Um, his teammate for this season, Luca Marini, is also on the move because we now know that he will be joining Sky VR46, a team that are rumoured to be possibly switching to KTMs for next season in Moto2. Um, and given how they've both gone this year, Dre, Banyaya and Marini is quite a strong lineup for VR46 next year. That's a very strong lineup. Marini's has had top fives this year and has looked very strong in the process. So, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think that. Um, that's a super strong Abanyaya was has been excellent this season, one of the best in the class already. He could be a real title threat next year. He, he could be a title threat. I think you I think he'll be in MotoGP in twenty nineteen for darn sure because teams are already losing their minds. Like teams are already apparently in MotoGP eyeing up if they can fit him in in twenty nineteen. So the yeah, the guy is looking like he's going to be you know a hot property at the end of next season and hmm, maybe him versus Miguel Oliveira for the championship just a thought um but in the meantime Don't yeah the, to that she's already putting her money on Sam Lowe's <laughs> say no more uh, <laughs> but um yeah him and Luca Marini Marini again is slowly starting to shake off the tag of Valentino Rossi's half-brother by actually being pretty good at riding bikes now. Um, with with yeah. many a top five. Like that tag's going to return now. He's going to be riding for his brothers <laughs> next it, year. It, it's, it's like, Luke, I thought you wanted to drop this about yeah. the whole Rossi thing. Now you've gone and joined this team. Uh, not yeah. clever. No, although it is, uh, I think he's proven again, as you say, he has proven this year that he is more than just a name. He is a brilliant rider in his own right. He's outshone Baldassare this year, which I was not expecting to see. Um, in that forward team, at least forward without a rider at the moment for next season. That's if they're on the grid at all for next year, which we think they will be. Um, but we don't know yet which uh, two riders, if they run two, will be riding those forward bikes uh, in 2018. Um, more Sky VR46 news, though, because they've also confirmed their Moto3 lineup for next year. Um, and it means that we'll no longer see Andrea Migno in that team. Um, we know not yet why and where he's going. Um, but Mino is out, Bulligat stays, and will be joined by the rider who I mentioned to you earlier on when we were going through the CEV results, Dennis Foggia, um, the rider who did make a one-off appearance earlier this season, replacing um, Darren Binder when he picked up his injury. He replaced him at uh, Austria, I believe it was. Oh, no, Austria was Massive. It was a race before that, Bruno, uh, where Foggia replaced him, um, which means that should Foggia convert that 60-point lead, it means that Sky VR46 will have two junior world champions in their team. Um, next year uh, with Bulliger joined by Foggia, two young Italians um, from the VR46 Academy in their team next year in Moto3. Um, now, one of the pieces of news before we look ahead to this weekend and, of course, the Aragon Grand Prix at the Motorland, um, and it surrounds um, a stalwart of the MotoGP paddock for nearly four decades now because it's become apparent on Twitter today um, that the uh, the voice, really, of MotoGP, Nick Harris, um, is retiring at the end of this season. Um, news that uh, Julian Ryder um, referred to on Twitter uh, on Thursday, today, as we record this. Um, Neil Harris, who uh, has been a part of that paddock, Drake, for 38 years. Um, and ironically, he's he's been the voice of MotoGP in almost every country bar his own native country of, of, of the Great Britain because of course he's the voice of the world feed which um, we don't take because we have to listen to Keith Ewan um, Yay. now, now um, uh, first of all a lovely guy I mean I've, I've had the pleasure of not so much speaking to him but just sharing a paddock with him and um, just such a warm guy just to just to, just to be around in a MotoGP paddock um, but it, it's difficult really to 
associate him and his voice with anything else other than MotoGP. You know a guy is pretty good at his job when his voice is instantly recognisable and associated with a sport, and Nick Harris falls into that category. Yeah, one of the most legendary commentators in motorsport history. 38 years in the MotoGP paddock, and as you say, the voice of the world fears. It's kind of strange. I mean, we associate MotoGP in this country often with guys like Charlie Cox and Julian Ryder and Toby Moody that have been voices for a long time on our networks because, as you say, we don't have the world feed. We we don't we don't need it. We've had private broadcasters have their own feed for as long as I can remember, and I'm not I'm not the youngest because I'm 25 myself. And you know, if all I've ever known has been Moody, you know, Moody Ryder, and and, and obviously now the BT Sport era of, of Chris, if Chris Hewen, Keith Hewen and whatnot, I should say so. Harris again, he's the world feed guy, and he is he is basically the voice of MotoGP at this point. He has been a legendary figure to have in the paddock, and he's going to be sorely missed once he once he once he hangs up the microphone at the end of this season because um he's he's going to be one of those guys you put in the conversation with Murray Walker as guys you just instantly recognise within a sport in terms of a voice and you know he's put his stamp on so many legendary moments in GP history. And I love that um, David Emmett on Twitter just said, I would, I, I'd really like to see him write a book because I, I can imagine yeah, he'd have some stories to tell, wouldn't he? Some mm-hmm. of the stories and uh, in, in the history of bike racing, he's going to have such an important role in that. So I would love to have, I would love to read that book. So uh, Nick, if you're listening, um, a bit of business advice for you. I demand a royalty, but. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, a, a legendary figure in GP bike racing, and I wish him all the best in his future endeavours. Um, and again, I, if he's a retirement, I hope it's a very, very happy one because he has been um, a very, very important part of MotoGP. Yeah, um, and he'll be remembered very fondly. Yeah, the the voice of MotoGP around the world, Nick, Nick Harris, who uh, retires at the end of this season, and we wish him. Uh, all the very best. Um, he'll be hoping to go out on a high, as we all will for this season. We still have. Uh, Five races to go in this MotoGP season. Um, and the big news as we speak heading into this weekend is that Valentino Rossi has been declared fit, uh, at least for free practice one. Now, by the time you hear this, um, you will know whether he was indeed fit enough to complete the rest of the weekend because this will be going out just after qualifying has completed. Um, and we don't know as we speak yet at the moment, Dre, truly which Yamaha rider will be on that second movie star uh, M1. Um, so we will leave that alone for the moment. Um, we... We were both really excited about seeing Michael van der Mark on that bike, we have to say. Um, so um, as much as you know, the sport can never really say Rossi returning is a bad thing because he is huge. Um, but I was really looking forward to seeing van der Mark on that, on that bike, I'm not going to lie. We may, may, we may still do um, if Rossi rides in free practice one and the pain is too much that he can't carry on. But we shall see. Given that we don't know whether Rossi's going to be riding this weekend as we speak, we're not going to mention him any further beyond this. What we are going to mention is the three riders that are still competing for this world championship ahead of Valentino Rossi. Um, Mark Marquez, Andrea Dovizioso, who are tied on points uh, with five to go, and Maverick Vinales, who is a handful of points behind them. Um, form, Dre, would indicate that this is a Marquez weekend, um, which means the pressure is cranked up on Dovizioso and especially Vinales. Yeah, and the thing is, Vinales is keen. Vinales is saying straight up that, yeah, we've, I mean, this is a guy that led the race for several laps last year on a Suzuki. So it's not like Maverick's slow round here. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's definitely going to have to keep one eye open for Maverick this weekend. I think he's going to be one to definitely keep an eye on because, uh, boy, Maverick is going to be quick. And Dovi was pretty quick here last year as well. So there's a lot going for both of them in this instance. And, uh, 
Whew, it, it could it could be very interesting indeed to see how it plays out because the the three of them I think are going to be very very evenly matched um, as the weekend goes on and we'll see if Marquez has the difference. I mean, yeah, it's it's easy to say yeah Marquez win because it's an anti clockwise circuit and Marquez likes left handers, but the way this season's played out, I, I think it's I think, I think that's far too easy personally. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're so. getting to that stage of the season where one mistake can make or break this can't it i mean this is the penultimate european round only the three asia pacific races in consecutive weekends and valencia to come um after this weekend and you know marquez has had three dnfs already this season which makes it all the more impressive that he's co-leader of the championship um at this stage with those three dnfs and davizioso who has done such a good job of managing this season as we go um both of those know already going to this weekend that if they make one mistake and fall off then that could be their championship done and dusted and vinales as i mentioned you say he fancies it um he's probably the one of the three who really needs a win doesn't he He cannot afford that gap which is around a dozen points now he can't let that grow going over to japan malaysia and australia he needs to cut it doesn't he yeah, he needs to start doing some damage and taking some points out of that because Vinales is in a dangerous spot here. Say Marquez wins and then and then Vinales finishes somewhat like third, it's 25 points. And that means Vinales is a race behind with only five to go. And that brings Vinales... to go after, after Aragon, won't yeah, we? Yeah, there'll be four races left as we go into the flyaways. And that's going to be precarious because, again, Marquez is strong around the flyaway rounds too. Mm. So it's... it's <laughs> Like I said, I think the season is, is starting to gravitate back to Marquez, which again could be interesting. But Vinales needs to start. He needs to start winning races. I mean, like I said, he, he's he's not won in nine races now. He needs a win to start taking points out of the top two. Otherwise, he's, he's just going to see the, the title slowly fall away from him because Dovi and Marquez have been the guys that have been winning the Grand Prix since since the European season began, really. Mm. Yeah, what's interesting as well in Moto2 going into this weekend, of course, is once again, the championship has condensed up after Morbidelli's crash last time out at Mizano. Um, in, in Morbidelli's defence, Dre, every time he's had one of those bad rounds this season, he's usually come back and won the next one, um, which is really what he's got to do this weekend because... It's now getting into the realms where, as we talked about last week after Mizano, if this championship league continues to decrease, or dare we say it, Lucy overturns it, you can really see the yips kicking off for Mobidelli, can't you? Given that he's dominated this for much of the season, only a nine-point gap heading into this weekend, and Lucy, he's within striking distance, isn't he? And Lucy, of course, went so well through the flyaways last year. Absolutely. Um, Lucy was super strong at the flyaways. He was excellent at Phillip Island as well. Um, and yeah, Morbidelli, he's kind of in unproven waters. He's not been in real title contention before down the stretch where Thomas Luti has. He was here last year when um, when Luti was in the mix right at the end, trying to push um, Johan Zarco to his limits last year. So Luti, Luti has that little bit more title experience that Morbidelli hasn't got yet. So that could come into play as well. Definitely one to keep an eye on um, for sure over the next couple of rounds because, I mean, Morbidelli has to be thinking about Luti behind him still because he, like, he refuses to go away no matter how many races Morbidelli wins. Luti is doing an excellent job of just being consistent and basically just, you know, giving giving Morbidelli the biggest case of the yips I've seen in MotoGP in some time. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. Of course, Alex Marquez returns as well this weekend. Uh, mm -hmm. in Moto2, what role will he play um, up the front of the race? Moto3, of course, the Moto3 class was decided last year at Aragon when Brett Binder won the championship um, at the Motorland. Not going to be the case this year, although Joan Mir um, can really put himself in position to win it 
Um, he has a lead at the moment of 61 points over Romano Fernati. Um, there will only be 100 left to play for at the end of Aragon. And then, of course, 75 to play for after Mategi. So a couple of wins. Um, we'll probably see Mia home by the end of Japan. So that will be his task this weekend to try and set it up um, for his first championship point um, at Mategi in the first of the three flyaways uh, next month. Moto3, though, likely to deliver, as it always does, uh, around Aragon. That, that straight leading up to the final corner is always going to lead itself to some slipstreaming. So look out for the Moto3 race, the first of the three this weekend. That brings us to the end of episode 31 uh, of Bike Live. Uh, don't forget, places you can find us on Facebook. We're on facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, on YouTube, it's youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Our website is motorsport101.net. And the places you can uh, find us, and if you want to back us financially, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101, where you can earn yourself early access to both this show and to Motorsport 101, which returns next week with episode 105. Um, at Harrison 101 on Twitter to find out if indeed Dre will be making his return next week. Um, they <laughs> might well need you, Dre, because um, checking my motorsport calendar, there ain't a lot going on this weekend on four wheels. Yeah, it's a dead week. So just listen to last week's episode again. I think that'll be fine, quite <laughs> frankly. But um, yeah, we uh, IndyCar is now done. Formula One, is, there's no Formula One race till the week after where they head to Malaysia. Um, and yeah, like there's really not much going on right now. We'll bash our heads together and figure something out next week but um who knows i may even be on the show to try and salvage something we'll have to wait and see how that plays out but uh try and listen to episode 105 and if not listen to 104 again no one no one's going to complain no <laughs> absolutely not uh, a very entertaining episode 104 by the way if you haven't heard it yet um, yes. head to uh, our soundcloud and itunes feeds to find it um rg o'connell ryan king matt canero and zoe hamilton um who um has managed to um shake off the restraining order against andre harrison from the week before just just, just. um <laughs> she was back allowed back for another week so um tune into that one um right now um, as well as episode 32, which will return here on Bike Live next week as we break down um, the Aragon weekend. Will we see a decisive weekend in the race for the MotoGP and Moto2 championships? I think Moto3 is pretty much decided, but we'll have a, f a whole lot of fun watching that class too. Whatever happens, we'll review it all this time next week here on Bike Live. Until then, from the two of us, it's bye-bye.